This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode 48 of the podcast, which is going to be Pretty bog standard, pretty by the numbers, pretty normal. We're going to talk about some new games. We're going to revisit some top tens, and then Jen will be joining us. And uh, we'll be answering some questions and answers. I haven't even looked at those yet. I wonder how many there are. Probably a lot. But we'll worry about that in a second, because you folks are here to learn about some new games, right? Well, hold on, and we'll be right back. Okay, everybody. So, there's not that many games to talk about right now. If I counted correctly, I think we've got just 12. And I guess that's not all that unexpected. We haven't quite gotten to the part where publishers are going to be announcing all their cool new upcoming Gen Con and Essen games. So, I'm sure there's a lot more in the future. But, some of these 12 are pretty cool as well. Starting with Age of Dirt. A Game of Uncivilization. And this is a worker placement game, and here's what I love about it, and concept anyway. These workers don't always do what they're told. Because basically what we do is, when I decide what they're going to do, go off and harvest resources or convert resources into points, whatever it is in this prehistoric simulation, they don't just go directly on the board. Instead, they get dropped into a cube tower. Probably, I haven't seen any pictures of it, something like the Amerigo Tower or Shogun Wallenstein type thing. And if all goes to plan, they will fall out of the tower and get right to work, doing what you want them to do. But they might get stuck in the tower and uh, knock loose somebody else. Maybe uh, one of my workers I sent out previously, or maybe one of your workers who you've been very patiently waiting for them to get to work. And so, this is such a cool idea. The, the, the idea of unpredictable labor force. I'm always looking for new and interesting twists on worker placement, and this has it in spades. I cannot wait to try. Age of Dirt. Then we've got Xion Prestige. And I have to admit, I don't know that much about this. It's from the same designer, and I guess it has a lot of the same gameplay ideas as Xion, which I did a video for last year, and that was kind of a really flew under the radar, hasn't really got anywhere near as much attention as it should. Very cool Euro. I liked it a lot. And you would know that if you watched the original run-through. But anyway, Prestige, I guess, is kind of a little miniaturized two-player-only version of the core game. And apparently, it was only published via some games magazine in Italy, I think? I'm not quite sure, but I mean, we like Xion so much, X-I-A-N, by the way, that I went on ahead and listed Prestige here, and wouldn't you know, the designer contacted me and said, oh, Rado, we'd love to have you cover it. Yes, it was only published in Italian by uh, Io Ghiocchio, or Ghiocchio magazine, but apparently they're going to send me a copy of it. I don't know what form it comes in. Does it have a box? Is it just in a baggie? I don't know, but presumably I'll be finding out more in the months to come about Xion Prestige. Then there is A Fistful of Meeples. Now, this is the next game from designer Johnny Pack. And a few months ago, he really knocked Jens and my socks off with Coloma. 
which I did a run-through for when it was on Kickstarter. Uh, Coloma was basically a reimagining, re reprinting, revamping of Hangtown. A very, very cool rondelle simultaneous action selection, basically Race for the Galaxy in the American Old West game. So, Coloma was phenomenal. And now Johnny is doing another American Old West game. And this time, instead of Rondell's, it's a Moncala. A Moncala worker placement game set in the American West. That is implicitly interesting right there. And uh, as far as I know, there's no player versus player stuff, which is great because you would expect uh, lots of duels and shootouts and whatnot. Just, hey, from the title alone, Fistful of Meeples. But it sounds like this is going to be right up our alley. And based on how great Coloma was, I'm very, very excited for A Fistful of Meeples. Then we've got Cor- uh, Coralia. Or uh, C-O-R-A-L-I-A. Coralia, I'm going to say. And this is from Michael Renick, who is Mr. Pillars of the Earth. Although more recently, he really knocked it out of the park when he collaborated with Stefan Feld on Merlin. So, Michael is a very, very, uh, very well-respected, very rock-solid designer. And apparently, this is a dice-drafting game. Uh, the... The description doesn't really go into much detail. Apparently, it's kind of a family gateway sort of thing, so maybe it'll be a little bit too light for me and Jen. But, you know, Michael Renick, he's a good designer, so I'm definitely keen on trying it out. The art, the box cover art anyway, looks really, really nice. So, Coralia, definitely something to watch for, I think. After that, we've got Fast Sloths. And that's Sloth as in the incredibly slow... Are they marsupials? I'm not quite sure. But uh, these ones are not actually going to be running around fast. They are as slow as any sloth you would imagine. But apparently, in this game, they are getting around the forest by hitching rides on the back of other faster-moving animals. And so, this is a really oddball theme. You know, I guess kind of a pick-up-and-deliver game where... Our own players are the things that are being picked up and delivered, or we're basically kind of hitching rides in a simulation that is already running. That's a cool idea, but what's really attracted me to this is it is the next game from Freedom and Freeze. And Freedom and Freeze is always a very bold and experimental designer, um, you know, pushing the boundaries, always, you know, never resting on his laurels. So I'm always interested in what he's up to next. And his last couple of games, Futuropia and Fine Sand, you know, really out of character for him, worked wonderfully as two-player games. So if he can keep it up, I'm definitely down for some fast sloth action. Okay, then there is Pact. P-A-C-T. Pact. And this is from Burned Eisenstein, Mr. Pelepines. Actually, you know what? I think every one of his games always starts with the letter P. It's interesting, uh, Friedman with his F games and Burned with his uh, P games are right next to each other in this list. But... This is going to be Burns' latest yearly Euro. He puts out a solid, very well-considered design every single year. And even when we don't particularly grok them or, you know, kind of connect with them because maybe they've got a little bit too much player versus player built in, we always think they're very, very sharp designs, very well worth checking out. And the interesting thing about Pact is, apparently, it is a semi-cooperative game, which... I know for some people it might be a real turnoff, but Burns' earlier game, PAX, P-A-X, this is a lot of P's here. I need a pop filter, I think, for this entry. Sorry, everybody. But PAX was a phenomenal game uh, where, for the most part, we're working together as rebels trying to, you know, uh, Sparta, you know Spartacus's rebellion, and we're trying to help out, but players can... Uh, 
turn the tables and, and you know, basically collude with the Romans, and that's how you could get a win. That was a brilliant game that really flew under the radar. And so, considering how well the semi-co-op was implemented there, in a way that I think, you know, everybody complains about semi-co-ops. Oh, it's so easy for one player to tank it. That was kind of the point. If one player feels that they're losing, then they will tank it and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to collude with the Romans, and that's going to be how I suddenly turn the tables and win this game. So it was kind of baked into the DNA of the game, which is very cool. I'd be curious to see if Burn comes up with something new or interesting or different with Pact, uh, which is why it's on my list. And then after that, we've got Ecos, the first continent. Now, this is a we are the forces of nature, tile drafting and tile laying to build up a, a you know an early primordial Earth-like planet. Seen this subject matter before. The reason this is on my list is because it is from John D. Clare. And you know, John's big claim to fame, Mystic Veil, vale, is phenomenal. Absolutely love it to pieces. And then last year, well actually it hasn't come out yet, I did a run-through for it when it was on Kickstarter, so I guess it's this year's Edge of Darkness was also very, very good too. So, this seems like a real departure for him because he's kind of established himself as the customizable card guy. So now he's doing tile laying, I mean, is he gonna, are we gonna have customizable tiles? Probably not, I don't know, but those other designs were so well considered that I'm definitely down for Ecos, the first continent. Then we have Endeavor, the Age of Expansion, and it was... Oh, great to see that uh, Endeavor got a last year, although I think it's only coming out now, or maybe it's come out in the last few months, people of Kickstarter backers have gotten their hands on Endeavor Age of Sail, the 2.0 version of Endeavor, the game that everybody thought would never see the light of day again, even though it was such an amazing, brilliant 4X game. And interestingly, a 4X, you know, era of colonization, exploitation, expansion, extermination, and... oh. Exploration, exploitation, extermination, expansion, whatever. Uh, and it worked so well for Care Bear players like me and Jen. We really enjoyed it. So uh, it, it's got its second edition, and it really fixed up a lot of the core issues, streamlined it, made it much more modern, and now it's getting its first expansion. With, I don't know what else, but more buildings means more replay because of more setup variability. That's enough for me. Cannot wait to find out more about Endeavor, the Age of Expansion. Then we've got Marquesas, which is from the Malls brothers. Except, no, they're not brothers. I always want to call them the Malls brothers, but apparently they're father and son. Is it Stefan and Louis Malls? And, uh, you know, these guys, uh, they have been producing a solid, unbroken, steady string of really solid Euro designs for the last few years. So they are definitely on my must-check-out whenever I see their name listed as designers. And this one, it's a uh, dice worker placement game, but apparently it's simultaneous action selection, so... Does that mean we're rolling our dice, choosing them behind the screen where we want to send them out onto the board and then revealing at the same time? Could this be a Dungeon Pets-esque game with dice? I don't know! Marquesas, definitely can't wait to find out more. Then we've got Search for Planet X. Now this one is very, very cool. It's from the designers uh, behind... Between Two Cities, and then subsequently Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig, which was such an incredibly outside-the-box design. At first glance, it looks like, oh, it's just a normal city builder. You lay your tiles and try to do combos and whatnot. But the fact that you were working with other players, uh, you know, colluding with the player to your left and the player to your right to try to make the best castles or cities possible was so brilliant, you know, so eye-opening, such a game-changer. And now they're back with their big follow-up. And in this game... 
we are actually astronomers trying to use deduction to discover hidden planets in the sky. And we are doing it using the same kind of scientific observations that real-life astronomers use in this pursuit of discovering planets like Planet X out there. I am really keen on this. I am always up for a game that provides really good, solid gameplay, but kind of informs me about how someone in the real world works and goes about their business. I mean, deduction games... It's interesting. Jen and I have found that Jen has a hard time with deduction games when I, as a player, have the opportunity to try to bluff and trick her. And and she ultimately gets frustrated and whatnot. But... A deduction game that is cooperative, where we're trying to drop each other clues, that's really great. Apparently this is not cooperative, but I would assume the deduction is less based on what we're trying to do and more based on just trying to figure stuff out based on the path of planets. You know, obscuring views of stars and all that kind of stuff. This sounds very neat. From two very uh, worth-to-watch designers, a search for Planet X. Then, okay, uh... It's going to be the latest unlock game, Timeless Adventures. You know what? I didn't even look. Uh, it's going to be... Apparently, one of them is another revisit to the cartoon. It'll be the third cartoon. Was it No No Side series? I don't know. These are really good. I'll be honest, though, folks. I think Jen and I are starting to get a little bit burned out on the escape room in your home style games. And I appreciate that every new set of these unlock exclamation point games have been able to reinvent themselves in small and interesting ways, generally having to do with how they bring the digital app into the game. And I'm hoping they continue to do that uh, because if, if this thing starts riding on its laurels, we might start tuning out. But for now, I am cautiously optimistic about Unlock, Timeless Adventures, and then finally, the last one on the list for today is Clinic Deluxe Edition. And this is so exciting. Clinic came out years ago, eons ago now, it feels like. And to be honest, uh, the production on the first edition was very, very low rent. It was okay, but I don't think anybody would accuse it of you know uh, being a potential nominee for best uh, components or best art or best anything. It was just adequate at best. But the gameplay was amazing. I said in my description on the geek list, as far as I'm concerned, this is the best sim hospital style game we have ever gone. And there have been quite a few contenders for that crown, but Clinic is the one that owns everybody else. It was such a brilliant logistical puzzle of a game. And very, very satisfying to pull off. Just not the prettiest game you ever saw. Well, now it's on Kickstarter for a big deluxe edition where they're bringing all the expansions in and I probably streamlining and updating uh, gameplay. I haven't looked at it that close, but what's most important been completely overhauled and graphically redone by uh, board game artist superstar Ian O'Toole, who I will be talking about very shortly in the Top 10 Recap. Everybody loves Ian's work, and considering what an amazing job he does trying to wrestle the designs of Vitalis Sarda and make them presentable so players can understand and grok everything... Him applying his magic to Clinic, ah, oh, that is a match made in heaven. So I am very, very keen on Clinic Deluxe Edition. And that's it, folks. Those are the new games I stumbled across over the last month. And uh, hope you, uh, some of them might have caught your fancy. But now, hold on a second. We'll be right back, and we're going to revisit some top tens. Hang on. Oh, 
Okay, everybody, it is top 10 revisit time, and I've got two big topics to go over this month. First was revisiting my top 10 of 2018, and I'll be honest, I don't know that there's much to say there. It certainly seemed like a lot of folks really took exception to my notion of classifying Pandemic Fall of Rome as an expansion instead of a, a standalone game and therefore taking it off the list and retroactively taking Dragonfire off the list for the same reasons. I think, for the most part, folks accepted it. Uh, you know, again, but it, it's my own... It, it, it's, it's, I, I think... I was pretty articulate and did a pretty good job in the video itself explaining why I feel it's an appropriate change to make. And, you know, it's just going to be uh, reflective of the way I think about games, which is what all my top tens do. So I, I don't think I went too terribly wrong. Certainly a lot of folks came up and said, well, if Pandemic Fall of Rome is just a reskin and, you know, or an expansion to Pandemic, why isn't Jump Drive just an expansion to Race for the Galaxy? And, like... Because, dude, Jump Drive is a radically different game. Roll for the Galaxy is a radically different game. It takes maybe 10% of the rules of its original and then does 90% new stuff. <laughs> Pandemic, Fall of Rome, takes probably 80-85% of Pandemic and then just does 15 or 20% new stuff, but puts it all in a new box. So... Anyway, I think I've said enough about that, and while I could go deeper into the other games, my 11 through 20, my uh, my my 20 through 50, etc., etc., I'm not going to do that right now, because last month's Rotto Rambles was actually me going on for well over an hour talking about every single game of 2018. Every other game we played, whether we liked it or not, and uh, every uh, every game from 2018 that we haven't gotten a chance to play, every game we got rid of, I went super duper deep. And uh, for me to kind of redredge that up, one would be, oh, I don't want to do it again. But two, it'd be kind of lessening the value of my Rotto Ramble series, which is something that folks get if they back me on my Patreon at $2 a month. For only $2 a month, folks, you can get an hour's worth of unique content every month, like me revisiting everything of 2018, or me interviewing my mom, talking about what I was like as a gamer as a kid, or a bajillion other things. But sorry for the uh, brief commercial interruption. You could even only do it for one month. Just back, pay your two bucks, and then boom, you've got probably 20 hours worth of stuff, and then just cancel it before the next month starts. Do it once a year. You know, like how you sign up for HBO Go for just a couple of months while Game of Thrones is on, and then after the series is over, you cancel. You could do the same with me. But anyway, sorry. So I don't know that I've got that much more to add about the games of 2018, but my other top 10, oh man, there is a lot to talk about. My top 10 artists, which has been a topic that, you know, has been on the list of things to do for a long time, and I've always been hesitant to do it because I knew what a rabbit hole it would be, and it was definitely a rabbit hole. It took so much time because to evaluate a game designer, all I gotta do is just think about how much I enjoyed the game. To evaluate the artists, as often as not, the artists, it's hard to tell what parts of the game they worked on, you know, when there's multiple artists involved, and and as I spent more time looking at them, I then found myself, well, let me go to their online portfolio, and oh my gosh, look at all this other amazing stuff! 
why isn't this stuff in a game? It's it was a very very tricky thing, and you know ultimately I stand by my top ten, but so many folks had feedback of like. Big surprises, um, names that I didn't mention that everybody expected I would, and uh, names that I didn't mention but I really should have. And and you know what, folks? I'm going to talk now about an additional 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Here's my numbers 11 through 25 in no particular order. This is just going to be alphabetical order. Although, oh shoot, I didn't look up one of them. Ah, I thought I've been prepared, so I'm just going to very quickly do a search on BoardGameGeek because I wanted to have a list of games they had worked on instead of just their name. And so, the first one I would like to talk about is... Oh, I'm clicking so fast! Clicking so fast! Oh, is... Right, right, right. Um... Uh, Atha... Uh, Kanani. And by the way, this is uh, um, alphabetical on their first name, not their last name. Athakanani, I was very, very interested in because their art is really, really great. And it seems like they have collaborated with my number 10, Chris Williams, on a lot of stuff. On, you know, Pandemic Games, on uh, Dead of Winter. Uh, it seems like they do a lot of work for Z-Man the same way Chris was. And at first, that was one of the things, well... Wait, where, where's Atha's work and where's Chris's work? I'm not really quite sure. Ultimately, Atha's main work, I mean, probably the single most stellar bit of board game art uh, from them is, uh, and I keep saying them because I didn't actually look up, I don't know if Atha is a man or a woman. All right, I'm going to look that up now too. Do, do, do. I know gender is a spectrum, but let's see here. Atha does not say on his or her website. I don't know. I'm just going to keep saying they. All right, um... Atha's most impressive piece of work I'm absolutely gobsmacked by is the cover art for Pandemic Rising Tide. Oh man, that is a gorgeous... Uh, you know, that, that, that sells the game all in itself. And so Atha... Uh, but again, this was one of the ones where I, I don't know... I mean, okay, after studying Chris and looking at his own site and um, seeing interviews with him, I okay, I know exactly what he's responsible for. I can say him... And Atha might have made my list as well, but it's kind of hard to tell. So Atha Kanani definitely deserves uh, mention. Fantastic art. But let's move on to my next one. Andrew Bosley. Several people asked about Andrew. And here's the thing. Andrew Bosley so knocked it out of the park last year with Everdell. That is an amazing accomplishment. Everdell is so beautiful and warm and atmospheric and inviting. It's everything I love. And I, that one game is so good, he almost made my top 10. But in good conscience, I couldn't give a top 10 space to somebody based off one game. And it's not to say Andrew hasn't done a lot of other really great work, too. But most of his stuff, well, one, isn't in games I play. And two, I mean, I think he's he hasn't really done that much. But I think he is Definitely, definitely an up-and-comer. In fact, uh, one of the games I just mentioned in my upcoming, what was it, uh, Marquesa, he's doing the art on that. So definitely Andrew Bosley is one to watch. But again, just based on Everdell alone. And I think when I was doing research, I found an interview with him where he talked about how Everdell was his... I mean, I might be mixing him up with another artist, but it was kind of like his dream job, masterpiece kind of a thing because it really allowed him to flex his creative muscles in a way none of his other projects did. Everdell's amazing. Andrew Bosley is a phenomenal phenomenal artist. It was really just volume that kept him off the list. And then next up is maybe tied, maybe the single most what the response I got was my lack of inclusion of Beth Sobel. And I got to be honest, Beth Sobel 
probably my number 12. I just missed the list. I absolutely love her work. Um, you know, and really, the main thing is, if you are doing a game that has a strong nature theme to it, like, I don't know, say, Wingspan, or the Herbaceous Games, or Sunset Over Water, you gotta get Beth. She is so wonderful. She just brings these worlds to life in absolutely gorgeous ways. Uh, she didn't make my top 10 because I haven't always been a fan of all of her work. Like I said, her nature work is second to none. She is probably the best nature-based artist. Again, of course, I'm, I, I shouldn't say that objectively. I, I cannot objectively say she is the best nature artist, but I would certainly say she is my favorite. But like her work on viticulture and Between Two Cities specifically, that stuff was 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 good, but not great. And it, it you know... I, and if I were just focusing on the one thing, but, you know, certainly one of the things about everybody who did make my top 10 was their range was amazing. And while Beth's work is is great across the board, it's one particular style, one particular type of work that elevates her so much that it I, I just didn't really feel like she had the same range as the folks who were in my top 10. But like I said, she probably makes my number 12 on the list because her work has just been so inspiring to me, and I'm not even an artist. But let's continue on to, oh, one of two uh, guys on my list who are who go by a single name, Bibon. Uh, although I looked it up, his real name is uh, Christophe Fassard. His art, well, first of all, like Andrew, he could almost make my top 10 based on just one single game, and that is Dice Forge. Dice Forge is so amazingly gorgeous. But if that weren't enough, Zombie 15 is another game of his. And, and he has several other games as well that I'm not as familiar with. But those two games almost got him on the list. But it's interesting. As much as I love the look of those, when I was actually doing the top 10, I was talking... Which artist was I talking about? Um, one of the artists... Oh, now i got to go back and look at my top 10. I only looked at the, the next... Tw- All right, let's see. Let me get my top 10 list up here. D-D-D. Show more. Which artist was I talking about? It was when I was talking about... Oh, Dave Kachard. Dave Kachard has a very, very cartoony style. And his cartoony art really pops off the page and feels real, feels lived in, feels alive, feels tangible. And I would definitely say that um, Christophe's, or Christophe Fassard or Bibon, his... Car, his his art is very, or at least most of his board game art, I'm sure he has an incredible range of more realistic stuff, but what he's known for is these amazingly beautiful, gorgeous, cartoony renderings. Uh, it has a very French style, it feels like to me. I assume he's French, I'm not quite sure, but I've certainly noticed an art style that's really typical among French artists. And it's great, but... When I compared his amazing, beautiful, cartoony, uh, you know, characterful art to to, um, Dave Kuchard's, it didn't quite have the same tangible quality to it. It felt a little bit more cartoony, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's what kept it out of the top ten, even though it's... I mean, again, Dice Forge is such a tour de force, and but everything he's done is really, really great. Be bon. Then, uh, moving on to D for Damien Amamaliti. I might have mentioned Damien. Uh, he, I think, is a definite up-and-comer. He is definitely an artist to watch, specifically because he, did, he didn't do the graphic design for the new brass revamps, uh, Birmingham and Lancashire, but he did do the maps, and those maps are amazing. And if those weren't enough, The Witcher is great. Uh, his work on Edge of Dark 
darkness is great. So I definitely think he is one to watch, but I think he's relatively new. And so I didn't he didn't just like, you know, rocket up to the number 10 with a bullet, but I still am really impressed by the art of his I have seen. And then staying with D's, there's uh, David Tassello. And this is another brand new artist, kind of coming out of nowhere. I, I know of two games of his, one of which hasn't even come out yet. But I'm thinking specifically of Orbis and Minds of Olnek. Orbis is another game, uh, you know, again, I don't know if David is French, but he has that kind of French cartoony feel where everything is just so lush and gorgeous and detailed, um, but not tangible in the way that Dave Kachar's art is. Uh, and again, it's that lack of tangibility, but it's also the fact that really I only have two games and one of them, Minds of Olnek, has not come out yet. I've been watching and waiting for this game anxiously now for, I think, three years solely based on David's cover art. That looks so beautiful. I think David is definitely going places and he's just going to be appearing in more and more and more games moving forward. David Tosello. And then after that, I mentioned Beth was probably tied for my number one. Hey, what the? Where? Why didn't you forget this one? If it wasn't Beth, then Ian O'Toole probably far and away took the uh, top spot for How Dare You, Rado! You are a Philistine, to not mention Ian. He is certainly one of the greatest artists, if not the greatest board game artist working today. And okay, folks, you know what? Here's my big mea culpa. Ian belongs in the top 10. And if I could go back in time, I would have put him in the top 10. And let me tell you why I didn't. Most of my exposure to his art is through his collaborations with Vita Lasarda. And of course, I think that's where probably he's really... I mean, he's, he's worked on tons of games. And again, if you go look him up, just do a search for Ian O'Toole on Google, an image search, and you'll see so much amazing stuff. And by the way, I know this is cold comfort to these artists that I'm not actually showing their work in video form, but any one of them, folks, you can just go and do a search on Google and see amazing stuff. So I, I strongly recommend doing it. I recommend it for Ian's work as well. But, you know, most of his board game art that he's done, I'm really not that familiar with. It's mostly Vita Lasarda. And, don't get me wrong, those are amazing breakthroughs because, you know, Gallerist and Vino Second Edition and... Oh, Getaway. Uh, was that what it was? Is it Getaway? I mean, like, all, you know, all the recent games are... Um, um, I can't think of them now. But anyway, he, he's, it's like the last three or four, you know, the new CO2 edition, the last three or four games he's done with Vila Lasarda are amazing. And the he's about to redo Kanban as well. And the interesting thing is, I think the most important thing about them isn't actually their artistry, but rather their ability through graphic design to tame the insanely complex designs of Vita Lasarda and make them presentable, enhancing and improving the actual gameplay of his games. And for that reason alone, he deserves to be in my top 10. And the reason he wasn't in my top 10 is because I incorrectly made the following assumption. I have been under the impression for years that Vito Lasarda does um, the lion's share, or at the very least most, or is at least very, very involved in the graphic design of all his games. Because while he moonlights as a board game designer, one of the most popular ones in the industry, he still has a daytime job as a graphic designer for uh, an advertising firm in Portugal, I believe. I think that's what he does. Or he's like an art director at, a, at, a, at an advertising agency. Something like that. Don't quote me. Um, and But anyway, 
I, I've seen a lot of VTOL's early prototype boards, and it's obvious that so much, to me anyway, so much of the graphic design, the layout, and everything came from VTOL that I was not able to discern where did VTOL's work in and Ian's begin. And because of that, I left him off the list. Uh, much to the chagrin of many, many people. And here's the thing, folks. Ian O'Toole himself posted on YouTube um, when I expressed, when one of many, many people are asking, why isn't Ian on your list? And I said, well, look, he's an amazing artist, uh, but the games I've seen, you know, I basically just gave this spiel about the graphic design, how much, I wasn't sure how much was VTOL, how much was Ian, so I, I just couldn't commit. And Ian himself got on and corrected me and said, actually, everything on those boards I am responsible for. I'm like, oh, I'm duly chagrined, very much embarrassed, and retroactively adding Ian into my top 10 board game art. Because if the majority of that work is his and VTOL didn't do the majority of it, then I stand corrected and I made a mistake. And he deserved to be on the list because his work is splendiferous. And that's what I got to say about Ian O'Toole. Then we go on to Jackie Davis. I so love Jackie's art. Uh, Epic Resort, um, uh, Ex Libris, Stockpile. I mean, Jackie could make Donald Trump an appealing-looking person. And sorry if you're a Trump fan, folks, but you know I'm not. And you, so you know what I'm saying here, that uh, you know, Jackie could actually make me kind of feel warm towards um, you know, the Donald. But her, her characters are amazing, and I absolutely love them. Bell of the Ball? I knew it was a nasty cutthroat game. I went out and got it anyway solely for her art, because it was so amazing. Her art really feels very Disney-esque, her characters specifically. I don't know what her background is, but, I mean, Disney could easily hire her as a concept artist. It's just so good, so next level. Here's the thing that kept her out of the top ten. What I, everything I just talked about was her amazing work on her characters. I have not seen as much from her in terms of environments, in terms of graphic design. And while she may be amazing at all that, it just hasn't really popped in the way that her characters do in Videlitas or what have you. And so again, I just can't be sure if, uh, if she was as well-rounded as the 10 that I did put on my list. But she is amazing. I, her characters are maybe my favorite characterizations of, of you know, people in the uh, board game art form. After that, we've got J.J. Ariosa, who, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I'm really impressed by all his work on the Role Player series. And I think he might have been able to make the list, but the majority of his games I have not played. So I just was only familiar with just one main focus, and that wasn't enough. But I, I mentioned him because I was very, very impressed by what I've seen of J.J. Ariosa. Juliet Breeze, the... Uh, the for the longest time, for I want to say decades, but for over a decade, she was the artist who worked on all of the key games. And I believe she is the sister of Richard Breeze, the designer of the entire Keydom series. And I am so in love with her work. Um, you know, it has made such an indelible impression on me and Jen because we have spent so much time playing so many of these key games. And uh, while she has retired from board game art, which breaks my heart. Uh, you know, forever some of my favorite art. You know, the the little wonderful touches she put on the backs of your player shields in Keyflower. Come on, I mean, absolutely amazing stuff. Really, just blown away by Juliet's work. 
Then we move on to M for Matthew Mitak. He's another up-and-comer. I think he's really going to make an explosion. Uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't actually, in person, in real life, seen any of his art, but... Tang Garden and Iwari and a couple of other games from what I have seen online, I think he is really going to shake things up. And if I had done my top 10 five years from now, he might have made it if he continues. Uh, but right now, I'm just going to have to label him an up-and-comer. Uh, I can't say the same, though, for Miguel Coimbra. This was another one that a lot of people pointed out. Why did I not mention Miguel? And he certainly deserves it because he is one of the OGs of the modern resurgence of beautiful art in designer board games. Seven Wonders, Cyclades, um, Cargo Noir, Small World. Small World especially is a miracle of design. That board, I actually, uh, the Small World board almost made my top 10 boards. It's so incredible uh, in terms of, you know, being evocative and bright and still being so readable. Uh, Absolutely amazing. And his work on Cyclades, forget about it. And Seven Wonders, you know, he is basically Mr. Seven Wonders at this point. Uh, why didn't he make it? I don't have any good argument against it. He's like uh, my number t- 11, 12, 13. Just phenomenal stuff across the board. Miguel Coimbra. Then we've got another one-name artist, uh, Nayed. I looked up his real name, uh, uh, Javier Duran. Uh, Duran. I-, I think I will go with Javier because I have no idea how to say his artist name. But Big Book of Madness, Seasons, Takedo. Tell me those are not gorgeous games. Of course they are. Takedo is so beautiful that it got that super awesome deluxe. Uh, you know, I don't know if Takedo would have gotten the deluxe with a lesser artist, but his artist was so his art was so good it demanded that deluxe big huge uh, uh, treatment that it got. His stuff is amazing. And again, the only thing that kept him out is it's it's that same Dave Cochard when I look at his beautiful, evocative, cartoony art. It has that extra level of tangibility that, to my eyes, Xavier's art does not. It's not to say it's not absolutely amazing. Absolutely love it to pieces. Big Book of Madness, when I started making it, was one of the very first games I had to go up right. Who did the art on that? Because I'm sure that guy's going to make my top 10. And he just missed it. But uh, Xavier Duran or Naid is a phenomenal artist too. Then, Weberson Santiago. Now, he's got two games that I'm familiar with. Fuji and Bloody Inn. And, oh my gosh, his art is so brave and so unique. So one-of-a-kind. I so love it. Uh, You know, this kind of dark, twisted, Tim Burton-esque... Not, you know, I mean, it's a very, very different style, but it still kind of evokes the same kind of gothic feel. And um, it's weird, you know, the, the games he's worked on really kind of warrant... Well, no, I mean, no, his, art, his art was perfectly placed for Bloody End, which is obviously a very, very dark, tongue-in-cheek uh, game. But Fuji is not, but his art works there so well. Um, I, you know, I really, he reminds me a lot of an artist I loved back when I was reading comic books in the 80s. Uh, you know, on the, his New Mutant runs, Bill... I never knew how to say his name. I'm going to say uh, Senkovich. Uh, it's a very weird, complex Polish name, I think. Uh, Bill Senkovich was one of my favorite all-time comic book artists. And uh, Weberson Santiago is like Bill Senkovich has come to board games. And I mean that in the best possible way. I've only seen two games he's done on, so that wasn't enough. But he could have, in a few years, he might have pushed into the top ten, definitely. And then the last one I've got on my list... Oh, 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 oh. Uh, the actor reminds me. Um, Bill Senkovich... 
I, I'm, I'm not quite sure how to say his name. And I remember when I did my top 10 and I was talking about my number one, the Miko. And how his his art reminded me so much of another one of my favorite comic book artists of all time. And I could not remember the name of the artist. Uh, it was Sergio Aragones, the artist of Gru. Uh, and the Miko, while I, I think his art is better, I like his art more, it still has that just explosive life to it that I just was so drawn to in my teenage years. And anyway, sorry, back to the list of folks who didn't make the list. Uh, Xavier or Javier Colette, Dixit, Mysterium. Abyss, you know, those, all those covers for the Abyss, all the, you know, the, the five different box covers, uh, all the timeline games, or a lot of the timeline games, uh, his art is absolutely stunning. Certainly deserves to be in the top ten. My only problem is, I don't really think of him as a board game artist. He's just doing art that gets put into board games. Um, you know, he, I, so I, I can't really say what he is doing in terms of, you know, all the other stuff. He's just making incredible pieces of art, and it's like the board game is built around his art. And, uh, you know, and, and, and that's amazing, but that's kind of what kept him out of my top ten as well, because really, those ten I did list, and for those who haven't seen it, let me just go ahead, I've only mentioned two of them. It was Quis Crilliams at ten, Arnold, uh, 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 Oh, I don't know how to say your name, Arnaud Demgod, Quanchai uh, Moria, Mr. Cuttington, Clemens Franz, Ryan Lockett, Dave Cochard, Michael Menzel, Vincent Dutre, and the Miko in my number one. Those artists, I just love their art in general, but I also love how they leverage their art into the art of board gaming. And I don't think that uh, uh, Javier Colette has necessarily done that. He just uses his board games as his, uh, as his canvas that he paints on. Uh, so it's beautiful, amazing stuff. All of this is amazing. And I mean, I could probably go on for another three hours with other artists, but these 15 were the ones that I thought so hard. You could consider every single one of them tied for 10th, if you want. And that was it, folks. Revisiting in a format not even remotely appropriate, my top 10 board game artists. And, okay, well, we're done with that. And now I'm going to pause for a second. And uh, I hope Jen is back. She went shopping this afternoon. But she said when she got back, she would feel up for answering some questions and answers. So hang on. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody. I lied. It's the next day. Jen <laughs> did not come back in a timely fashion. And even when she did, she said, nope, not talking to anybody tonight. We are done for the day. But uh, now we are going to start with some questions and answers. And they're mostly going to be game related, which means Jen's probably not going to weigh in that much. So she is on her phone doing I don't know what at the moment. <laughs> Stuffing things. Stuffing things. But she might... Weigh in from time to time as we go to our first question from Nigel, who is interested to hear thoughts about the following. Do we feel that any game with subject matter or historical setting deserves to be published and judged on its own merit? Or do we feel that it's about time that Western publishers and designers let go of arbitrarily using colonialism and imperialism as the basis for games which could just as easily be set in a fictional or at least generic time and place. So, honey, uh, this is because I think actually uh, we got quite a few emails. I think we got emails about this last month. I, I don't feel remember. like we've answered very similar questions. Yeah, I think it was last month. There were several questions about a game called Scramble for Africa that got canceled because of outcry related to its seemingly 
a tone-deaf, let's say, presentation and depiction of the European colonization and subjugation of the African continent. And uh, so, Nigel just wonders, should should games still come out? I mean, he, he talks very broadly, but then he very specifically talks about colonialism and imperialism specifically. So, personally... I have no problem with a game using that subject matter, or really almost any subject matter, provided they do it in a manner that is appropriate for whatever it is they're trying to address. That treats it with seriousness, with gravitas, and you know, uh, you know. The, still, the best example is the five tribes thing. I don't have a problem with slavery existing in five tribes. I don't even have a problem with being a slave owner necessarily in five tribes. I mean, I mightily praised Endeavor as a game uh, that does it brilliantly, puts you in the role of an actual slave owner and slave trader, if, depending on how the game evolves. The problem with Five Tribes is it was so gratuitous. It, it was so out of place. It was so just... It poorly fit the rest of the narrative of that game. So... I can imagine a version of Five Tribes that is very, very real, very historically grounded, and um, you know treats the subject matter with solemnity, and it would probably would have been fine, as opposed to just kind of a throwaway, oh, you can buy your bananas, you can buy your rubies, you can buy your people. And uh, let's just make them, you know, let's literally put them in shackles and make them miserable. I, I think the same thing is true for colonialism. You can have a completely tone-deaf, terrible depiction. Uh, very, very one-sided, very myopic, very, ah, who cares? We're just here to have fun. And I don't think that would fly. And certainly that's been the case for most games along these lines, that they haven't really treated the subject matter with the weight that they should. And I think you're seeing games be a little bit better about it. You know, the most obvious examples would be Mombasa and Santa Maria, both of which included increasingly greater and longer portions of the rulebook devoted to, hey, let's talk about the reality of these human tragedies that we are turning into a fun bit of entertainment so that you have this in the back of your mind that, hey, while this is an interesting simulation, let's not forget what's a simulation of. And that's tricky because, of course, these are casting you in the role of the colonizer instead of the colonized, um, in large part because that's just going to be more fun when it pulls right down to it. But I do think you can tread a fine line. And as any game that follows up after Mombasa and then Santa Marina probably has to treat it even more carefully and uh, more respectfully. And, I mean, there was certainly no evidence with Scramble for Africa, that they were doing anything other than saying, Yeehaw! It's fun! Let's go have a good time! Taking over this continent and uh, ticking all the boxes of atrocities. And uh, that's not necessarily fair because, you know, the developers never got their day in court to uh, say, No, we actually treat this really serious and we do actually want this game to be a teaching moment. Maybe they had plans for that and it was just all lost in the hubbub. But I, I think... I think there's nothing particularly wrong with that subject matter if it's handled correctly. Honey Pie, I don't know if you even listened to anything I've said, because it looks like you're over on the Pinterest. I, Do you have anything to add? Um, I did listen to everything you said, but oh. I don't have anything to add, because oh. I think we've already talked about it a lot, especially in um, uh, Freedom of the Underground. Okay. Um, so I, I don't really have anything to add. Okie doke. Then we'll move on to Daniel, who uh, wants to, wants to uh, call me on... Something I said previously about how you could turn any theme into any other theme. It's easy peasy. They're all interchangeable. 
basically, you responded to me on Board Game Geek that you'd be willing to retheme a game if someone asked. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he asked me directly. And I said, hey, I'd be totally fine covering that. And so now he's calling me on it. Uh, all right. <laughs> so he has, it looks like, six tasks for me to do. Starting with number one, retheme Arkham Horror. All right. Arkham Horror. Well, see, Arkham Horror is actually going to be a really easy one to do because what is Arkham Horror at its base? At, you know, at its core, it is simply a game where you have a protagonist moving through an environment, um, you know, dealing with events and overcoming obstacles. That's it. You could, first of all, uh, the simplest thing is just say, oh, well, it doesn't have to be set in whatever the Lovecraftian Cthulhu mythos is. You could set that in ancient Rome and have you be a centurion moving around in, uh, you know, one of the outer colonial cities dealing with problems instead of from, you know, the elder gods. They could be from invading um, uh, hordes and also from political unrest because the locals don't want to be subjugated under Roman rule anymore. Easy! That would be... So simple to do. But you don't have to stop right there. That's the easy way to do it. Um, because conflict uh, you know, between different factions is fundamental to nature. So you could just as easily turn Arkham Horror into a game where you are a white blood cell traveling through the body, dealing with external viruses and whatnot that are bursting in. And you could just anthropomorphize everything, like the movie from a few years ago that I can't think of the name of anymore. Uh, remember that one where you where uh, it was a bop, uh, buddy cop movie where there was the white blood cell. He teamed up with the yeah. with the with the with the cold capsule, and yep. they and they fought crime yep. in the form of viruses. I mean, so or, or, you know, when he gets right down to it, anything like Arkham Horror is just uh, you. You could set it in space. You could set it in history. You could set it in the American West. You could set it, um, you know, in New Zealand. You could set it any place, anytime, anywhere, because there will always be factions, um, you know, at odds with each other. So that's not a particularly interesting or challenging one. Your second one, retheme an Uwe Rosenberg game into a high fantasy dungeon crawl or a war game. Right, and then you add Caverna doesn't count. Well, <laughs> but I do think Caverna shows you the way. All right, let's just go with Agricola then and let's turn it... All right, um, you know, a high fantasy dungeon crawl or a war game. Okay, a war game. Agricola as a war game. The most obvious thing, of course, is uh, you know, at the end of every season, you have to feed your workers, right? That is a an expense you have to pay or you will suffer consequences. So don't make that food anymore. Say that at the end of every season of this war game themed, you know, that's taking Agricola's uh, uh, you know, mechanisms, there is going to be a battle. And you have to be able to pay a certain number of soldiers to win that battle. And if you don't, you will lose victory points uh, for all intents and purposes. And if you can, uh, you know, put together the, uh, instead of gathering food, everything in Agricola is all about, you know, converting all sorts of things into food so that you can, you know, meet those requirements. And at the same time, while focusing on meeting your requirements, also building up a greater infrastructure. Instead of being a medieval family, you are a collection of generals. And your worker placement spaces are not spots all over a uh, medieval village. You're not going to the midwife or the local pond to go fishing. Instead, you are going to... I mean, let's just stick with ancient Rome. You're going to the uh, Roman Senate to get political favors that um, take the form of uh, minor and major improvements. You are going to, yeah, uh, you, know, you 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 are going to recruiting colonies. You you are um, going to 
Uh, you're, you're, you're getting um, conscripted uh, labor or, you know, soldiers, slave soldiers. That, that could be different ways of, uh, you know, converting, um, you know, uh, what do you call them? I can't think of any of the words now. <laughs> um, of all the different food types in the game, you know, whether it's cattle or pigs or carrots or whatever, any one of those things could be converted into a basic resource that you would need to be able to wage war in ancient Rome. And you instead, you instead of a family, you're a general. Instead of you know doing family growth, you are getting more advisors, which is more workers that can be sent all over the place to build up your war infrastructure. Um, the war itself is largely abstracted out because, hey, just at the end of every year, we've got to be ready to go to war or else we'll lose a lot of victory points. And we're trying to build up our infrastructure easy. I mean, the thing, um, other than the fact that I could not remember the name of a single thing in Agricola, <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Rethemed Gloomhaven. It's the exact same thing I just said. Uh, make it a game about, you know, a beat cop in... In uh, in Los Angeles, um, you know, on on one tough night, as you know, he basically. I mean, that's actually a fairly common trope in movies. The you know the the or the or make it a soldier behind enemy lines, just trying to get out, or make it a super spy breaking into mansions and terrorist hideouts and stuff like that. Anytime where you just have somebody who has to be in conflict with some greater foe, you can plug that in, and there's a billion stories you could tell there besides high fantasy. Um, right. Retheme a war game into a soulless Euro. <sighs> okay. Well, okay. So that's the opposite of what I just did. Um, well, I don't really know of any war games particularly, but war games for the most part are all about moving stuff around on a map. And, uh, you know, they're just basically area control things. I got to move my things into the space and kill your things. And, you know... Right, turning that into a... I mean, because you know, obviously you could turn... You could just put one battle in for another. But you're saying, no, no. Make it into, effectively, an economic simulation. All right, war as an economic simulation. Let's see here. That. You can jump in anytime you want, Honey Pie. Uh, um, nope, she's gone back to Pinterest. She was looking at me for a second, and now she's backed away. Uh, let's see here. Uh, first thing I think about is the stock market. You know, um... Something about, you know, instead of fighting over hexes on a board, we're fighting over shares of a company or something like that, maybe. Well, that's going to be mostly through auctions and whatnot. Okay, so this is a euro. See, okay, now, thematically, that's going to be a tough one to do because war... I mean, euros generally are not about destroying. Euros are about building things. War is about destroying things, and that's really what we're going to do is DNA. So... I have to turn something about destroying stuff into something about building things. So what am I building? I'm well, I'm building an empire, but I, you know that's a tougher one to do. I'd have to think about it a bit longer and harder. So I'm gonna all right, a soulless euro. Gosh, all right. So that just means I'm basically trying to convert beans into bread into gold coins, um, but I'm doing it in the form of a game where I am right. Well, okay, then it's going to have to be some kind of ancient world market or something like that, and it's going to have to be something about the fact that you know all the players are really rich merchants trying to claim a stake of this particular famous market. Say it's uh, the Jaipur market or something like that. And our units are going to be market stalls that move out, that claim 
claim territory so that we can, you know, reap the profits of whatever customers come in. I guess war games don't really have, they, you know, they just have the, oh, you, you, well, no, war games generally have you building up an army, right? So that you can deploy it. So, um, whatever, whatever war game you're talking about here, because I don't know of any, I don't know the rules of any war game, but whatever method you have for getting the money to hire the soldiers so you can put them on the board and spread them around, apply those same mechanisms to something where, okay, either I, I am, instead of trying to get more soldiers, I'm trying to get more goods to sell. And instead of getting more uh, infrastructure for my war machine, I'm trying to get more actual the materials I need to craft my stands. And then uh, there is once I can build a stand, once I've got the stuff to sell it, i.e. soldiers, I put it on the map. I now own this neck of the woods. You could do the same thing and try to move into my area. Now, the thing is, it's fundamentally not a soulless euro because while it is now an economic simulation and no one's fighting, no one's dying, instead we are vying for control over territory, it still is at the heart of it, uh, you know, a, a, a clash, a conflict between varying... But, I mean, I think you could do something like that. But again, I'm really at a... I, you, you should have said a war game, but I don't know of any war games. But whatever war game you want to name, I bet you there would be mechanisms because there are universal things. To achieve something, I need to get the resources to be able to put that plan into action. Whether it's soldiers, whether it's tanks, or whether it's uh, uh, carpets and rubies and what have you. Okay. Retheme Aeon's End into something Euro-y. Well, that's going to be, again, that's just a straightforward, oh, well, it's a conflict and we're turning, I mean, it, it, the same kind of stuff I just talked about. I have to admit my, because actually I've just been this morning reading the rules for Temple Town, which is, why can I not remember the name of this movie? Oh my gosh, this is driving me nuts. I'm going to have to go look it up now. The movie, uh, animated film with white blood cell buddy cop movie. Osmosis Jones. Osmosis Jones. Osmosis Jones. I love that movie. I haven't seen it for years. But anyway, um, because that's in my mind, I, you know, that's just like an easy one to go to. It's just what keeps popping back. The notion that, hey, um, the big boss you're fighting isn't some big, scary, fantasy monster. It is a big, gigantic virus. Um, but no, you know, it doesn't have to be. If you want, okay, if you want to get a bit more soulless. Really, at the end of the day, Aeon's End is all about when you play, there is one big task you have to complete. The task is always kill this boss and do it. Um, so I'm going to change Aeon's End into a um, into an office simulation where you know, actually it doesn't matter. Pick any office in the world. Uh, you know, I'm going to base it on. Um, the office in D Dunder Mifflin, um, where, where you are either Dwight or you are Michael or, or what have you. And we have a big job that we have to overcome. It's a big sales thing that has to be done this year, or it's a, it's a corporate takeover from somebody else or, you know, there's like a big project that has to be done by the end of the week. In Aeon's End, that means we have to do a certain number of hit points. In this new office, the board card cooperative game, it means we have to spend a certain number of work hours working towards this. And instead of a deck full of spells and gems and whatnot, we've got a deck full of all the characters from the office who have their different skills and abilities. And every round, which represents a day, we um, you know get access to different ones, we play them, all with the goal of generating the points we need to complete our fundamental goal. And of course, the, the thing we're trying to deal with, you know, the, the big presentation at the end of the week that we have to get ready, it of course has its own deck of stuff that gets in the way and that it's constantly throwing. But instead 
better than being little mini monsters we have to fight. They are somebody pulled the fire alarm, and so uh, you know suddenly uh, you know your, your characters have to be discarded, and you can't cast your spells anymore, which meant you cannot use um, uh, Stanley or I, I, it's been so long since I've been off, so I don't remember anybody's name, but you know what I mean, or Pam. You can't use Pam in the way you're going, even though you'd prepped her uh, to get the work done by the end of the day. Oh, that's been canceled now because of the fire alarm got pulled or or whatever it might be or some wacky character showed up totally doable um and i think people you know after it was done would say well yeah of course the office is a no-brainer i mean because conflict is the universal here and it's easy to put conflict into different uh categories let's see and then Alrighty. Uh, oh, retheme Aeon's End or Dominion. Well, you know what? Everything I just said about Aeon's End easily applies towards Dominion. Uh, now we don't have this fundamental task we have to work cooperatively to overcome. Instead, we are all individual managers. It's Dwight versus Jim and, uh, you know, other character Ryan, uh, all trying to score the most project points instead of prestige points. And you're building your deck based on the characters, based on the moments from the show, and and every day you draw the cards, that's what you're going to be able to use. And it's all towards, instead of getting money, getting the uh, the, the work hours that you need to achieve getting access to more stuff so that you can just try to hit your victory point targets. And, um, you know, the, the more... You know, the way Dominion works, the, the more of your victory point cards go into your deck, they clog up your deck. The same thing is true here. The more work hours that we get... I mean, you know, uh, instead of getting... Oh, I can't think of all the words... Gosh, urgh, I cannot think of a single word. What are the names? Provinces, duchies, whatever they are. Instead of getting duchies and putting them into your deck, those are the work hours that you bought. And when you come into your deck, they represent fatigue. Now, in future rounds, when they start clogging up your hand, it's because everybody's been worked to death. You've been making them work overtime and stuff like that. And so, as the game goes on, it gets slower and slower and more difficult to achieve those last bits of work hours, or whatever the term would be, that you have to come up with. But that's totally doable. Anyway... There, we are done. Unless Jen would like to add something, I don't think, again, she's listened to a single thing I've said, so we will move on to Natalie. And I'm wondering, why didn't I just do this last night? Because Jen's not going to say nothing to nobody! you have anything to say, honey, Not yet. All right. Okie doke. Um, let's see here. Natalie says, I was looking through uh, Unfilmed Games, which is unfilmed.rado.com, and noticed before our big move to Malta, we had a couple of games on the list, and they are still there. Adlung Land and Extra Extra. Thinking about the international move and the big calling of games, have you already played these games and decided to let them move on with you because they're really good games, or were they just moved because you haven't played filmed them yet? The latter. I have not played either of those games. Uh, Extra Extra, I feel extra bad because... The designer, I ran into him at Essen, and he pretty much pushed the game on me, and he was very, very enthusiastic, and I've had it for years now, and I really do feel like... And what, where are you going, honey pie? Just here. I'm here. I'm here. Okay. Apparently, she... All right. I don't know why any of that has happened. And that totally threw me off. Uh, anyway, uh, extra, extra, I, I just need to get played. I need to get it filmed because I feel like I owe it to him, although I don't owe him anything. And at one point a few years ago, I wrote him an email saying, sorry, I haven't done it. He said, oh, don't worry about it. I totally understand, but I still feel bad about it. Adlung Land, I don't know. If, I mean, I picked that up for five bucks used. Someday I'll play it. It was so tiny, there was no reason not to. But that's why they that's why they made the call. All righty. Uh, and let's see. Pretty much anything under unfilmed.rado.com. Chances are... 99% of those we have not played. Because if we had played them, they would be filmed. Or we would have gotten rid of them because we're not going to film them. Dave says, 
where are all the TWA-type games? A few years ago, there were many of these heroes being published, and now it feels like Ameritrash games are consuming the industry. Dave, I disagree with that, assentment, uh, that sentiment. Uh, my purchase list was exclusively based on your reviews over the last eight months, but very few games you review are games I'd buy. It's not a reflection of you, but the industry has Europe fallen for American commercialization and forgotten their game roots. Dude, go look at my top ten games for 2018. I will do it myself. Rado. Top 10, 2018. I believe every single one of those is a Twa-like Euro. Actually, maybe be a couple that weren't. Um, but let's see here. Stop. And show more. And I would like to say Carpe Diem, Forum Trajanum, Gugong, uh, New Frontiers, Underwater Cities, uh, Teotihuacan. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, those are all very... I mean, they're different games in Twa, but they are very... Dry, soulless heroes. Um, you know, Coimbra, Wingspan. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about, buddy. You need to give some more information as to why you think... I mean, there's euros aplenty. I, I, I play probably one Ameritrash game for every five or ten euros we play, so I'm not quite sure I agree. Uh, number two, Dave says it'll be a sad day for my wife and I when the when Rado runs through stops. But when you do... What games will most often hit the table? I ask because a top-rated game isn't necessarily a most-played game. Take away all the requirements. What three or four games did you reach for most often? I think the easiest answer to that is to go check out my top ten games. I wish we could play more. <laughs> and it's a few years old. It's a bit out of date, but it's still true. It's still true! It's still true, yes. Alrighty. Uh, my wife and I have fought... Oh, nope, nope. That's going to come back in the personal questions, the third question. So we move on to Ben. How many items do you subscribe to on BoardGameGeek? How do you generally decide what to subscribe to? Ah, uh, that is a big number. Sorry, Honey Pie. So far, nobody has any game-related questions for you. That's all right. All right. You will just sit there patiently waiting for your moment to strike. And I will look up my subscriptions. How do you do that? Oh, manage subscriptions. So, currently, I have 300, or 3,259 threads I'm subscribed to. Um, 5,360 geek list items I'm subscribed to. Wow. 2,193 items, i.e. games, I am subscribed to. Well, basically, of course, anytime you ever reply to anything, you automatically subscribe to that. So let's take out threads and geek lists. Um, I think the main thing you're talking about here is games. I have subscribed to, oh, to almost 2,200 games. And the way that works is... As I am every month list looking at every single game that gets announced, every single game that gets added to BoardGameGeek, which means literally hundreds and hundreds of games I am researching every month, um, if it is, at first glance, interesting enough to warrant going onto my games of interest list or onto a thinking about it, I just subscribe to it. So every month I probably subscribe maybe to, I don't know, 30 or 40 or 50 new games. And then I just have those subscriptions. Every day, I have, uh, you know, my subscription pumps out, I don't know, probably close to a thousand things I need to read on all the different threads based on all these games. And I've just kind of gotten good at skimming through it. So, I, I, I don't know why you want to know, but hopefully that answers the question. Uh, basically, I subscribe to any game I'm even remotely interested in. Uh, so that if something interesting comes up down the road that convinces me I want to learn more about it, then I will hear about it. And, uh, you know, even once I pick the game up, I just keep the subscriptions going. But I, I generally, once I play the game, I pay a lot less attention to those subscriptions. I, when I'm skimming, I'm just skimming for, oh, I remember I remember reading about that game two years ago. If somebody finally posted something, maybe this will be the thing that actually pushes me over the top. All righty. Ben, oh, that no, was Ben. 
Then John says, I was wondering how many games we can think of that we've played that share a name with a place in the world that we have also visited. Uh, I don't know. There's a bunch. Um, ah, uh, we've been. We haven't just, been to Carcassonne. Have not. We have not been to Carcassonne. We've been to Bruges. Yeah. And uh, London, obviously. <laughs> we've, been, we've been to London a couple of times. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm looking at a game right over there that says Tessin, which is almost Essen. <laughs> yes, but nice try, Honey Pie. Well, um, I, I don't know. Um, honestly, if you go on Board Game Geek, there are so many geek lists that list, hey, it's a list of uh, games that are names of places that you can actually go and play the game. And if you were to do that, uh, you know, there's probably 50-50 chance that we will have played it if it's a Euro. Uh, we haven't been to Valparaiso. We haven't been to Orléans. I guess more often than not, maybe we haven't been there's to There's Macau. We haven't been there. We have not been to Macau. Um, we haven't been to the castles of Burgundy. No, we have not. We drove through Burgundy region, I believe. I oh, no, no, that's Eastern France. Hey, we've France. been to Copenhagen. We have been to Copenhagen. All I'm right. looking around. We haven't been to Luxor, mm. at least not the one in Egypt. <laughs> we've been to the one in Vegas. There you go. Then we've been to Luxor. We've been to Hawaii. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, both Jen and I are looking in different directions, mm-hmm. just kind of scanning the walls. And I can't imagine this makes for very interesting reading. So, oh, we've been to Snowdonia. Yep. Uh-huh. So That was really a nice trip. It was, a, it was an excellent trip, yes. Uh, we have not been to St. Petersburg. How about Marrakesh? We We've been not. to Marrakesh, but is there a game called Marrakesh? We Ish. didn't play it there, I guess, so that doesn't count. I can't think of a game called Marrakesh, which is kind of odd now that I think about it. Okay. Chris says, Now that we move back to the States, do you think that publishers will uh, send me more final versions of games more often than when we lived in Malta? Uh, I would say the jury is still out on that. If anything, I think we might get less. Because when we were in Malta, European publishers, by and large, were willing to send me review copies of games. It wasn't that big a deal for them because Malta is an EU country. And, you know, French publishers, they were kind of iffy. But really, the, the main problems I had with were American based publishers, uh, that they kind of balked and whatnot if they had to send something all the way across the pond. Well, it was expensive. Yes. And uh, now that we're in America, well, the European publishers are a little bit more loath to send because it's very, very expensive to send all the way over here. And at the same time, the American publishers, well, some of them are a bit more likely, but Asmodee, I've mentioned this in the past, is still always very, very hit or miss when they send me stuff. Well, I mean, you know, I did have a working relationship when we were in Malta with Sdevium, Sdevium, which is Asmodee's European distributor. So I could, in some way, get some kind of reliable. I um, you know, maybe they'd come late, but I, for the most part, they would always come. They were just really picking up. Oh well, you can't have more than three this month. I'm like, all right, whatever. You know, I'd cover them all, but fine. Uh, and but now I can't work with Sdevium anymore. I have to work directly with Asmodee, and I find it very, very difficult getting them to send me stuff. Uh, for reasons I don't understand why. Uh, actually, I, I wrote them several times over the last few months, and just last week I wrote them, hey, can I just confirm this is still your email address? Because you haven't replied to me for over a half a year. And they said, oh, no, we're really sorry. It's just been really busy. We'll send you out some stuff. And I, I don't know why it's pulling teeth, but it is. So I would say, if anything, it's probably broken even, maybe even gotten a little bit tougher, which is surprising. But, you know, for some publishers, you know, Tasty Minstrel. But, I mean, Tasty Minstrel would have sent to me in, in Malta anyway. So I'm not quite sure how it breaks out. 
Colin says, he recognizes that this may sound cynical, but it's just for curiosity's sake. I routinely note that Jen and I only have time to play new games and never have opportunities to revisit any of our favorites. If that's the case, why do we keep several shelves full of games? They all look good. Uh, however, their forbidden fruit nature would drive me crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're nice to have. It's it's sort of a comfort blanket for me that someday when Rado runs through ends, we'll still have our, our old friends. <laughs> and we'll get to play with them again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, they're really good games. I, I really like them, and I do look forward. I mean, it's... I, I don't think of them as... Te- they're not really a temptation because there's no time. I guess it's kind of sad looking around. It's particularly sad when, for whatever reason, I open up a box and it's gotten all moldy inside yeah. because it has not seen the light of day since we left England and we just keep carrying this box around with us. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, someday. Someday. Alejandro says, he saw this in a board game forum and so we'll borrow the question. What would be Jen's and Rado's favorite games by continent? The theme of the game is set on a given region, country, etc. You can also include space as a location as well. Are you just saying which continent we... No, 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 no. I mean, uh, uh, pick Asia. What's your favorite game in Asia? What's your favorite game in North America? What's your favorite game in South America? What's your favorite game in Canada? Wow. My brain doesn't work that way. No, I mean, I think people don't understand. That is just about the worst question you can ask. What's your favorite X? Because for me to answer that, I now have to literally try to access the catalog of every game I've ever played. And somehow, I'm not a human computer. I don't sort data. I don't think people do. (laughs) But that's why you have your lists. Yeah, so, okay. I will just go to my list, which, um, Alejandro, you could have just gone to ranked.rado.com and you could have just seen this for yourself, but I will save you the trouble. I will go to ranked.rado.com and I will just start from number one. And the first thing I see in Europe uh, will be my number one. The first thing I see in space. Let's see. Pandemic is set in the world. All right. Shadow and Crossfire is set in Seattle. So that's my favorite Seattle game. Gloomhaven is a fantasy world. Agricola is set in uh, medieval Germany. So uh, Agricola is my favorite German game. (laughs) Troyes is set in uh, medieval France. So Troyes is my favorite French game. Oh, but Castles of Burgundy is the very next one. Oh, no. So it's a very, very close second for it's my favorite French game. Nations is set in the world. So sorry, you lost to Pandemic. Keyflower is set in... It's basically set in the New World. They just don't say it. So you could say it's colonial America, I suppose. Peloponnese is set all over the place in, you know, the the Crescent of Humanity, I suppose. Uh, you know, uh, Seven Wonders is set in the ancient world, but those are times, not places. Dungeon Pets is a... All right, Dominion is again set in France. Roll for the Galaxy is our favorite game set in space. And Trajan is Rome. And then you've got Carpe Diem, which is also Rome. Too late, you're, you're too late, Carpe Diem. And so on and so on. Uh, Santa Maria is the number one set in South America. And uh, so on. So I think you get the idea. <clears throat> Alrighty. So, I finally succumbed to the force of Agricola and purchased it. After a few plays, I have to say, I love it! Mm. Although Glass Road is still the number one. Because uh, it's got glass in it. I, I know you have previously mentioned that Farmers of the Moor is a must-have expansion. That being said, what would be your top three Agricola expansions, ex- including Moors? See, now i got to go and look up every single expansion in history. Think about... That is such a hard question. This is why... Where is it? If you go to faq.rado.com, literally, 
My number five question addresses this, which basically suggests that you go to the suggestions forum on BoardGameGeek and post your looking for suggestions question there because you will get inundated with dozens of people giving you dozens of data points. I can say off the top of my head that, of course, Farmers of the Moor is a must-have, and I don't remember what it's called. It's something like the Gamer's Deck or the Championship Gamer's Deck. It was basically one of the bigger collections of cards, and it was 100% done as a result of online... And it was, it was great. Probably some of the best cards. It's also completely, totally out of print. It's very, very difficult to get, so it's not a good suggestion at all. So, I mean, off the top of my head, those are the only two I can even name. But what I would suggest is go to faq.rado.com, number five, and if you post that question there, you will get a cavalcade of answers with people debating the merits of each, and you will get a much better answer than I could ever give you. So there you go, Alejandro. Number three, let's say Publisher X was going to consult with Jen and I about developing a Middle Earth themed game. Mm. Around what particular story, character, race, or whatever would interest you the most of that realm and that hasn't already been published? Uh, would you like there to be a game of? All right, this, I mean, you have to step up, Honey Pie. Having read half of the Silmarillion. <laughs> Which I have not read. I have not read the entirety of the uh, trilogy. I've read The Hobbit a couple times, and I could never make it through Fellowship. Because really? it was so boring. It's not I boring. am so sick and tired of descriptions of the color of the leaves, and the <laughs> bend in the road, and oh, we went over another hill, and now the hill sloped slightly downwards, and the, and the ground was slightly more pebble-strewn. No, no. Gah! Kill me now! <laughs> Right. So, yeah, I mean, so this is a question, basically, honey, of um, what's your favorite element of Lord of the Rings that you would want to see in game form? Well, the Fellowship, of course. Okay. Um, right. Uh, well, but what? Get how, creative. How to work together and how different races with different expectations and goals and priorities can come together and work together. Doing what? Uh, well, I don't know. Saving us from Sauron. You, so you just want to do the trek. Okay. So, unfortunately, that has been done 50 bajillion yeah, times. So, that was your number one. What's your number two? I don't Nothing. know. Nothing. You don't care about anything else. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was all interesting. So, just be more um, different races working together for whatever reason. But you don't, so basically what he's asking is you have no particular favorites. You don't want to have a game about Tom Bombadil. You don't want to have a game about the, the, the great lamps that were destroyed, um, you know, in the, in the, in the first age or whatever. Uh, you don't want to have a game about, um, you know, the birth of the dragons or, you know, when they roamed the earth. You don't want, I mean, there's no subject in all of Middle Earth that interests you more than just the plight of the fellowship. Is that fair to say? Well, if so, then you got nothing for him. That fellowship was, you know, nine individuals. So um, it doesn't have to be that fellowship. It just mm -hmm. has to be maybe learning to work together. Mm -hmm. um, that would be interesting to me. All right. As opposed to being in conflict. Uh-huh. Okay. All righty. Well, there you go, Alejandro. You've got the answer. Uh, what is the main mechanism you would like to see in such a game? Well, I think you kind of answered that. You just want to make it a cooperative game. And you're not going to design it for Alejandro because he's just looking for ideas here. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, you're not uh, addressing my strengths. Yep, yes. All righty. Dave says, Jen, if you designed a board game where you, the player, were a glassmaker with a shop in Murano, okay. what would the game be like? Is Murano or Burano? Which one is the glassmaker? Murano is the glassmaker. And what's Burano? It's the sister island that was so charming. Oh, we went to Burano. And we're completely because Murano was was way too commercial. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but still, you're in Burano. You're in Murano. 
At some point in history, you know what? I running be, a glass shop. I want to be in Burano, having a cottage industry going on and t- catering to the tourists that were totally tatted out by the stuff in Murano. That's my game. Okay. That's what I would do if I was a glassmaker in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so basically... I, yeah, but I, yeah, you... you I think what you mean is that's what you would like to do, but you know full well you wouldn't do it because all the tourists are over on Murano. And if you want to make a living, you're going to sell your stuff in Murano. Am I wrong? I don't know. I I think... You think there's enough overflow traffic to Murano? Enough people who got on the wrong boat because <laughs> the M versus the B? I don't know. Um, I hope so. Or people who are... Yeah, because there was an awful lot of commercial tourist just... Rubbish. Okay, so what you're saying is the game you would be, would you would do, would be about the struggle and the plight of a modern day glassmaker who is trying to compete against the big monolithic glass corporations yeah. that are everywhere that are just churning out, um, you know, mass market crap. When you're actually, I mean, making, it's, your, it's your own story yeah, yeah. making individual. So that is what the fundamental crux and challenge and conflict of the game would be. Well, and then also, I think you would be in conflict also with everything that's coming out of China, because, you know, they're churning out a ton of... Is there a lot of Chinese glass for sale in Murano? Yes, there is. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, what does that mean? It would be a game where are you trying to develop relationships with the shop owners and saying, look, just just no. stock mine a little bit. No, I think it would become uh, would be a game mainly, probably what I'm doing with my life, basically, is just, um, you know, developing a following of people who want really good craft work, who want something unique and different, and who want an experience. And going to Burano would be an experience because you get a completely different feel of those islands visiting Burano than you do Murano. Mm-hmm. So that would be, I think that would be how I'd set it up. Setting up sort of a, I don't want to say a, um, like a tourist trap, because of course that's what we're trying to avoid, but basically creating a, a destination where you would come and... Okay, so the, the, the notion of your game set in, I'm just going to say Venice. There you go, <laughs> um, the Venice area. Is that you are trying to make a go of being a successful independent glassmaker... Um, which means you have a fundamental issue of dealing with everybody going there for the mass market produced crap that is easily half the price of your stuff. Yeah, maybe even 10% of the price <clears throat> of my know, stuff. Be- because you have to actually charge for your time, whereas they have robots making their stuff. Or well, not, I don't, not I don't robots. know if they've got robots, but... But still, I mean, they just have mass market or, you know, mass... Well, they, they have apprentices that have to, you know, spend right, five right, or right. six years So doing... your problem is you are competing against this game system, right? Well, the system that's grown up over centuries. Right, no. But it, it's, it's the game itself is saying, okay, there's this push because, yeah, look, there's this market flooded with low-cost stuff, and you're going to put this... You you cannot beat them on price. There's no way. So you're having to trade off, well, how much will I compromise on quality to try and get a more competitive price, Um, or I'm not even going to try for that. I'm going to go hard for a high price, and instead I'm going to have to engage in marketing and community outreach um, and education. Uh, Am I going to try and, uh, you know, leverage... I mean, I assume it's set in modern day, so you're going to try to leverage online versus Mm. events... You're going to have to uh, split your time between actually making the stuff versus, you know, traveling to conventions and all of that. Is that kind of game? I guess so. I mean, that's kind of how I see the independent craftsman surviving. Okie doke. And it just happens to be set in Venice. Sure. All right. Jen, we spent the wrong day in Murano and all the glassmaking tours were closed. We're going back next year and hoping you could tell us what we need to see and experience. 
Oh, wait, actually, you know what? Jen, we're going to come back to that, because that has nothing to do with games. That's going to be oh, in the okay. personal section. Yeah. Alrighty, and... Right, actually, yeah. So that was the one game-related question. Everything else is going to be a bunch of questions for you uh, about um, stuff other than designing your glass-making game. Stacy says that I've talked a little about not airing dirty laundry in public about the board game industry and uh, or the video game industry. Do I know any dirty laundry about the gaming industry personalities that I haven't aired? I know very little. I know Actually, I know a lot about the video game industry, but that's ancient history and probably doesn't affect anybody because probably everybody's gone since I'm gone um, by now. And uh, about the board game industry, I know very little. I have to admit, I'm a gossip. I, I like hearing that kind of behind-the-scenes stuff, but I never hear it. I never get any of it. So I got nothing for you, Stacy. I am not in the know. I do not have my finger on the pulse. I am always the last to hear about things. Uh, the most uh, place I do get industry scuttlebutt is on Wednesday nights when I appear on the weekly live Alaboom show. And occasionally, the uh, you know, all the guys that are there, several of whom work in the board game industry, will maybe give some scuttlebutt. Alrighty, Mark says, thanks for asking my question from last month about board games as art and whether it's entertaining. I'm not sure my question conveyed my thoughts accurately. Let me take another approach. What about the game Train by Brenda Romero? Not sure you're familiar with it. Actually, I am very familiar with it. I know Brenda, uh, and so I know all about it, because uh, I used to be in the video game industry. <laughs> and, um, right. What about that? And and you also point out, I mean, I shouldn't spoil it. Here's the thing about Train. Train is not a commercially produced game. Train is literally a gallery art piece that she made not to actually... Train is not made to be fun. Ah. Oh. You say not to spoil it, but I don't think there's any reason to worry about spoiling it because nobody's ever going to experience this in the way that Brenda originally meant to. Uh, it's just, it's fundamentally not going to happen. So here's the deal. Brenda is a video game developer. She's hardcore into board games. And uh, she, years ago, gave a talk about how she was finding more and more inspiration from board game design. And while it started out affecting her her video game work, it just kind of, you know, it started to get under her skin creatively. And she would, uh, you know, just make games up on the fly with her kids and use them as ways to educate them about, like, the Northwest Passage and all kinds of stuff. And she mentioned one game she developed that is about um, the Holocaust, uh, specifically uh, called Train. And the way it's presented to you... Sorry, folks, I'm going to spoil this, but there's no way you're ever going to stumble across this. Because I, I don't think you can. I, I just I think this is something she did for like a brief window in her life. And so you're presented with a game where you have to get little... Uh, not cubes, uh, little cylinders uh, into a box. And um, all the cylinders don't necessarily fit into the box. And you have several boxes to put them in, and you're trying to squeeze them in, and there's like a queuing system and stuff like that. And I, and you just do your best, and you have to make decisions about how to prioritize things and, and all of that. And you go through this, and then ultimately the, the boxes go away, and new boxes come up, because what you're not told right from the get-go is you are a Nazi officer who is charged with getting the most Jews into trains on their way to concentration camps possible. And your success is measured by how many people die at your hand indirectly. And the thing is, you are not told this right from the get-go. You're just given this weird little abstract kind of puzzle game. And at the end, after you've played it and you've won and you feel exultation, because I've done really well, I've achieved the goal, uh, you're told, here's what you were doing. And what is your response to that? That is the nature of train. And I think that's an amazing 
um, piece of art that can um, you know touch and inform in a way that a static painting on a wall cannot do. Still, there is no way that's ever going to be put in a box and sold at Toys R Us or at Cool Stuff Inc. Because that is not its intention. It's not its intended audience. But I do definitely think it's art. I remember your question from last month, which is, why um, you know, why are we trying to make games like The Grizzled or This War of Mine or Freedom of the Underground Railroad, which are implicitly not fun because they're actually about the world and they're weighty, meaningful topics? Every one of those games is still fun to play because the developers are trying to make something fun. And... While at this, and trying to use that as a method to, um, you know, kind of stealth load messages into your brain, um, you know, and inform you about the human condition, uh, while using games as a virus, effectively, and that's great. That's a wonderful use for them. It gets back to the question earlier about whether games should feature colonialism. I think they should if they are used as a virus to get ideas into players' minds about the evils of colonialism. Then they can be a net good. And uh, it's a shame when games don't do that, because they have the opportunity and the platform to do it. Train is a very different beast. I remember her talking about how she actually presented it to, like, um, you know, the head of the Jewish League and, and all, you know, all kinds of, you know, important influential people and whatnot. That had a very different intended audience. It would never be a commercially saleable game, because I don't think it was really that much fun. Uh, I'm not sure. You said, what about that, question mark? That's what I say about that. <laughs> My original question was intended to pose the question about the origin of these designs and what you think of the future of board games as art might be. I guess I kind of just described that. Um, board games as art are a great viral way to uh, present ideas that, play that players would otherwise not be touched in their regular life. Uh, there is no particular reasons that a board game cannot indirectly introduce you to the horrors of war-torn Syria and what families have to go through while still presenting a fun and entertaining, colorful game that just gets under your skin. Uh, I, th I think there's definitely the possibility for that. Um, of course, I mean, you wouldn't set it literally, because there's just the fundamental, oh, what, what's the equation? Um, uh, tragedy plus time equals comedy. Uh, and I, I imagine there's a similar one you could do for, you know, tragedy plus time equals a fun board game, too. And so you have to adhere to, I mean, you know, if, if it can't be funny, then it can't be a fun board game either. But that is still an opportunity. In the same way, Star Trek in the 60s, uh, you know, did everything they could to, uh, you know, raise the societal consciousness by using thinly veiled uh, sci-fi tropes to, you know, draw parallels to, you know, the, the real issues of the world. Board games, there's no reason for them not to do that as well. That is my feeling. I don't know if you have anything else to say about board games as art, honey pie. Nothing! Nothing. Did I take all the oxygen out of the room? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Frank says he's always thought it's a shame that Jen and I never get a chance to play old favorites because of the cults of the new and our hamster wheel. Have you ever thought about getting trusted interns to play many of the new games and help you separate the wheat from the chaff? Oh um, would you even jump at the chance to play old favorites or are you happier unlocking the secrets of new games? I'd love to hear your thoughts on your top 50 or so games having played them again. Yes, that's a fair point. Um, well, okay, there's a couple questions there. First of all, let's talk about interns. I have, at times, thought about... I've, I think I mentioned this on previous podcasts. Specifically, inviting uh, Slicker Drips, Tom Heath, to abandon his channel and join my channel. Kind of the opposite of what Tom Bassel does, where he brings people in and eventually they split off to do their own channel. I think it would be... I mean, Tom's channel and his structure and his format is... 
you know, he freely admits, readily borrowed from mine, or cribbed from mine. And I think he does a really good job. And he would get a lot more viewers if he were here. And, I, you know, so I've often thought about that, but I'm not quite to the point of doing that yet. But I've always thought of that as a, hey, you know, he takes over, people get comfortable with him, eventually I quit, and the channel lives on. Um, he would just have to come up with his own Rado-esque name. Or he could just say Slicker Drips runs through, but that's just weird. Uh, so I've thought about that, but that's about as far as I've taken it. But I will say, Frank... I'm glad you asked, because I desperately need some interns for a very specific job that's been driving me nuts. A few months ago, YouTube dropped... You know, they, they previously had stopped allowing us to create new annotations on videos, and now they've completely deleted all annotations on all videos. Oh which gosh. means the first 200 or so run-throughs I did, which all say, click the button to go to the extended playthrough, or click the other button to go to Final Thoughts, there are no buttons to click. And it drives me nuts that people who stumble across these old videos have no way to actually see the rest of the video. And so, it has been on my list of things to do for months now to painstakingly spend probably upwards of hundreds of hours going through and manually adding in-screen so that a, a, a button or a, you know a button would appear on screen when I say so. And I don't think I can do it. And so I think that is something that sooner or later... I mean, I can't ask Paula to do it, because quite frankly, Paula is too expensive. <laughs> um, I, um, I'm happy paying him what I pay him to do the uh, videos, but I am not going to pay him the salary I pay him to do this kind of grunt work, because it would just be long, painful, arduous grunt work. <laughs> so Wow, what an advertising yes! position. Uh, so come and intern for Rado and spend countless soul-crushing hours using the terrible YouTube interface to add hundreds of links to videos where the links have been wiped out. So I could use some interns for that, definitely. And, uh, but that was another interesting question. Would we, you know, if Rado quit tomorrow, would we jump at the, of course we'd play our old favorites, but are we happier playing old favorites or unlocking the secrets of new games? I thought that was very well put, Frank. Yeah, and actually... Honey pie. Yes, I would like to say that <clears throat> over the last five years or so, I think I have... I, don't, I wouldn't say matured, necessarily, Ooh. into a new stance on this. But oh, my. I think I have grown. Um, perhaps it's just the cult of the new or the excitement of something new. But I think I am enjoying playing you know, lots of games a lot more than I used to. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. I, folks, this is news to me. Yes. Um, so, what's the difference? What, how do you mean? In what I way? wonder if maybe it's because you are so much pickier now about what we play mm. that the vast majority of the games that we, we do play are good. Uh-huh. And, you know, for a couple of years there, there was a lot of other <laughs> things that we were playing because you, we were finding our stride and whatever. Or, or what works for us and stuff, yeah. 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 Um, so there was a, a bit more chaff to go through in getting to the wheat. Okay. So I'm just saying, I mean, lately, I mean, especially since we've moved back, I know we've been playing a lot of games, but most of them have been really, really good. Mm -hmm. And I haven't minded. Okay, but you, but you haven't gotten to the point where you say, I prefer it. No, I don't know that I'm ever going to get to that point. Uh -huh. That would be a huge jump, because I do love my old comfy favorite friends. Well, okay, here's the question then. If you, you have two choices, you can either never play any game more than twice for the rest of your life, or never play any game at all other than the ones that are currently on our shelves. You can either... This is it. For the rest of our lives, this three, four hundred games right here that we love, these are our favorites of our favoritist. Yeah. Because I've gotten... Because we've had to get rid of ones that are just kind of like, oh, we like it, but, you know. Um, so, just live with these for the rest of our life, or never play any game more than twice for the rest of our life. 
Well, when you think about three to four hundred games, that's playing a game a day. Yes. Once a year. Yeah, exactly. Easily. So I mean, so it's not like you're going to burn out on this. Yeah. For yeah. the next fifty years. Yeah. I mean, I could play for the next twenty years. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. I, I think it's a it's 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 not like you could say, oh well, if if you said only one game for the rest of our life, well, it's a no brainer. Yeah. But you know, we've got. Three, four hundred games of our favorites of all time here. Would you rather just continue to play these for the rest of your life or never play any game other than new ones for the rest of your life? That's really hard. That's a tough one, I know. But I think if it came down to it, I would choose my favorites. Okay, so that's where you are. Yep, because they're guaranteed. Mm. Bird in the hand. No, I love it. Okay, well, I would have to say I'm probably on the other side of that equation. I know. Uh, Because I do really, I mean, it's just because I'm a... Former game designer, and I just love seeing new things and how they work. As opposed, I, I I love plumbing the depths and learning how things work on a deeper level. But I more enjoy learning how new and exciting things are. I, I like the new shiny. <clears throat> All right, and you would not though. Well, you would never get to play a new game ever again. But you know, it's not like that's a big compromise because I mean, there's all these games are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it's win either way. Yeah. 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 Well, that's why. That's why I asked it that way. Because it'd be a tough one to choose. Alrighty. My wife and I recently finished our first game of Coimbra and had an absolute blast. Even our first game. I remember Coimbra not making your top 10 of the year. Well, first of all, Bran, this is a question from Bran, please go talk to the earlier person who said there are no more good Euros <laughs> ever since Twa. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know what about Coimbra. Bran and I, Bran agrees, previous questioner, who I'm sorry, I don't remember your name. Anyway, uh, Bran, Coimbra didn't make our top 10. If I'm not mistaken, it had issues with character cards, the fact that they weren't specified. But when comparing with a game like, say, Notre Dame, a Feld, that we also play quite a bit uh, with the expansion, they obviously have different settings, different mechanisms at the uh, the two games. But at the end of every round in Notre Dame, you hire a character. Their professional role is only mentioned in the rule book. So in playing Notre Dame, you're also uh, only looking at the benefit they provide and really don't feel any connection with the character itself. Similar to Coimbra. I wonder how you would compare these games. In regard- oh, I think Bran is calling me out, honey. Oh, dear. He's trying to find a chink in my armor. But Bran, you have failed, sir. You have failed. Because there is a huge difference. Um, one, Coimbra, again, it just drives me nuts. Um, Coimbra is all about drafting those cards. We haven't played Coimbra since. It's... Uh, you'd recognize it. It, it basically, I forget. I, I think there's like every round there's a big old grid of uh, like 12 different character cards. And it's all about getting these character cards and meshing them with your previous character cards and doing combos and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And they're countesses and dukes and priests and, you know, all this kind of medieval, you know, the same standard euro stuff. Yeah. But they're all really good looking art. But not a single one of them is named. So they're all just generic people. Uh. And and I said at the time, wow, this game is amazing. The only thing that kept it on my top ten is the fundamental disconnect. Because the game would be so much better if we said, oh, I love you, Countess. If they just had to, they didn't have to give her a name. They could have said, oh, this is the Countess. And uh, it, would, it would make the game come alive and be more personal and more of a connection if they weren't just generic people. And it would have cost them nothing to just put the word on the card. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. So ridiculous. And and if even that, it would cost them nothing to say, okay, don't put it on the card, put it in the English rule book. I would have been, I probably would have complained if they had at least done that, but they didn't even do that. Especially since, if I recall correctly, the rule book had every single card listed, but they just showed the uh. pictures and didn't show the names of these people, and I know they have names! Urgh. Anyway, so, uh, why why do I not get, read Notre Dame, the Riot Act? Because here's the deal. First of all, in Notre Dame, the people you recruit are a very tiny portion of the game. 
To apply this problem from Coimbra to Notre Dame, what you'd have to say is, the majority of what you do is, every round, you deal with those buildings. What are they? The bank, and the school, and the hotel, and the church? Um, I, I remember, but, but I, I, the, the coach house? Remember, Jen always likes the coach house because you get to ride the coach all around Notre oh, Dame. Oh, yes, love that. Um, if those buildings, that is what you really do the lion's share of interacting with, were just called white building, red building, purple building, brown building, and black building, that would be terrible. And I would rip them apart mercilessly for, why didn't you actually give these buildings some kind of character? They're obviously inspired by something because they have these certain functions. Why not name them what they are? This is ridiculous. <laughs> Calling them the purple building and the black building and the red building and the yellow building. That would be insane. And that's what Coimbra did. And it's insane. And it's so short-sighted. And just... just you know, speaks to the lack of attention um, Euro developers give to theme. It drives me nuts. Um, anyway, and if all that weren't enough, the reality is the character cards in Notre Dame, even though they don't say, well, one, they do say in the rules, and that's good enough. If they'd done that in Coimbra, it probably would have been good enough. I would just keep that page open all the time, and I would complain, why didn't they make this a player aid so we can just easily refer to the character names? Or put it on the back of the manual. Or Yes, yes. Um, but the other thing is the characters in Notre Dame are very clearly what they are. You don't have to have the name to see, oh, that's clearly a Night Watchman. And we refer to him as the Night Watchman because he's a guy in armor carrying around a big old lantern. So you know he's a Night Watchman. He's not just generic, um, you know, citizen number three. So, uh, you know, they do a much better job. Or she is clearly the barmaid. I know who she is. You don't have to tell me. Coimbra, I don't know who any of these people are for the most part. And so that is the fundamental difference there, Bran. All right. Uh... Uh, by the way, is that the reason it didn't make your top 10? Yes, that is exactly the reason it did not make my top 10. Coimbra very likely would have been a top 10 of the year if they had bothered to do the most basic um, you know, attention to detail there. All righty. Uh, da, da, da. Oh, yeah, yeah some, of the, some of the cards are, are attack cards, but no, that wasn't it. Um, it, it the, the, the player versus player stuff is fairly minor, and there's so many cards, I think you could probably take them out and it wouldn't really hurt the game. Stacy asks again, do we have any plans to celebrate Tabletop Day? I would have to say no. I, at this point, I don't even know when Tabletop Day is. Quite frankly, is there, is there a Tabletop Day this year? Tabletop Day died the day the Tabletop canceled. The, you know, the Tabletop, the, the day Will Wheaton retired. The reason Tabletop Day exists is because of the Tabletop Show. It exists because of the strength of personality of Will Wheaton. And I don't mean to diminish Felicia Day. She's an amazing um, ambassador for the hobby, too. But she was not the reason Tabletop Day happened. That was Will. And now that Will has sadly retreated from public board game life, which breaks my heart because, I mean, he was such an amazing ambassador and such a great guy. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with Tabletop Day. I genuinely... Is it still in April? I haven't heard anything about it. Oh, it must... Is it over? Maybe it's already passed. Anyway, that would be my answer, Stacy. It's kind of sad. Oh, Will, please come back. Uh, more people loved you. It was just a few trolls. Believe me, I know. Anyway, uh, Mario says, Although we typically only play two-player games... I uh, would like to have our two cents on games like Dixit and Concept. What do you think about them? Well, we've never played Concept, but I think Jen has something to say about I Dixit. I love Dixit. Dixit is the only game we own that does not support two players. Of all three, four hundred games here, we own one that requires three, and that is Dixit. Yep. Why do you love Dixit so much, Honey Pie? Oh, I just love it. It's it's alternate brain thinking. It's creative um, interpretations. It's wonderful art. Uh 
it's fun to play. It's, yeah, it's just a really good game. Do you love it so much that we should seek out game groups so we can play it more often? No. So you don't love it that much? No, I, but I do like it when we have people here mm-hmm. and we have something to play with them. Okay. All right. Have you tried Networks and the expansion Executives? We have tried Networks. We have Executives. We have not played it. It is on my short list. What do you think about them? You can go watch my <laughs> final thoughts on... You just do a Google search for Rado Networks Final Thoughts and you will know what we think. But we haven't played Executives yet. Getting onto deeper subjects. Ooh. What kinds of stuff would you like to see disappearing from the board game industry? I'm talking about problems, types of people... Uh, other stuff you can think of. What could the board game industry do without? To which Jen says, I don't know. I don't know. Don't know anything about the board game industry. <laughs> and I kind of join her. I don't know. Uh, I tend to focus on the positive. I tend to forget about the negative. Um, I, It's not just the board game industry. In general, I think uh, society could do without people just pissing all over the work of others uh, and instead try to find the good in things rather than the bad in things. But that's not unique to board games. That's just true across the board. Uh, when looking into future new board games, what is the thing that gets you most excited? Uh, by order, designer, mechanisms, graphics, company, theme, ellipse, question mark. Well, definitely ellipse. I think that's <laughs> always my number one. Tell question me about mark. the ellipse. The question mark. Oh, awesome. honey, come on. Question marks. That's so played out. It's all about the ellipse. All right. Uh, no, a designer, of course. Always designer. I, you don't have anything to say about this, right, honey? You just I'm like sorry, I don't. Um, you, you. You have one metric. Did I put it on the table in front of you? Yep. I have not. Then I guess it's not interesting. Says Jim. <laughs> For me, designer is always the number one, and probably the publisher is probably number two because the publisher is a reflection of individuals who make creative choices about what they feel is good to put on the market. And if there's a given publisher that has predominantly put forward games that I enjoy, that means there's a better shot that I'm going to enjoy the next one. But that's not as impactful as the designer themselves. And uh, after that... uh, Honey Pie, here's a question for you. What's more important? Gameplay theme slash setting or gameplay mechanism? Because those are the next two, and I'm going to let Jen pick. What do you care more about? Uh, Do you get more excited about a mechanism you really enjoy or a setting you really enjoy? Probably mechanism. Okay. I like the gadgets. All right. Then mechanism at number three, and then setting would be number four. And I don't know that there is a number five. Uh, 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 Honey Pie, would you put the look of the game, the art, the presentation above mechanisms or setting? No. All right. So that's a number five. And I don't know that there is a number six. Uh, I guess maybe user recommendations? Maybe? I'm not sure. But I, that's, pro- that's probably where I'd stop. I'd probably stop at that four. Although it's not your style of game, I would like to know where you put Anya Krikowska, the artist of 1066, Tears to Many Mothers, and Gloom of Killforth. Link. On my board... Oh, it's because, of course, I did the board game artist list. I, well, she is certainly not somebody I looked at because she does not make the kinds of games I play. So, I will do a Google search for her name. Anya Creo. Uh, oh, that's a tough name to say. Search. All right, Google. Uh, image search. And, oh, that's apparently a really common name. So, let's just uh, put in the word art there as well. There we go. Wow. Um, whoa, that's crazy Bowser. Uh, her art is very good. Oh, I love her, Daffy Duck. That's really great. Uh, she's a very talented artist. She is one of 
uh, it seems like thousands of insanely talented artists working in the game industry right now. Uh, there's certainly a, a level of grit in her art that I didn't see in a lot of the folks that reigned my top ten. I think that might leave out. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. But there's, there's yeah, there's just kind of a... Oh, it, it's a level of detail that uh, it works really well, but it's just not necessarily... I mean, I, I, I think, given my druthers, I kind of prefer a cleaner aesthetic. But it's a minor thing. Uh, so yeah, that's what I think. And is that it? Honey, we're done with games. Oh my goodness. Alrighty, so you've been very, very patient. And hold on, we'll be back right after this, folks, when Jen will step up to the plate and tell us all about the personal questions and answers. Unless, of course, you're done here. In which case, thanks very much for listening. Have a very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. <laughs> but otherwise, hang on, everybody. We'll be right back one more time. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Now it's time for some personal questions. Although first, Jen had to pretty much destroy half of my filming <laughs> studio to get, quote, comfortable, end quote. And she's knocking cameras over and, oh, I don't even know what's down there, but get out of the way. My feet are, uh, take priority. All right. I like to have my feet up. Yes. Well, her feet are up and Jen <laughs> is ready to start answering some cues, starting from Melanie who wants to know, what are some of the new streaming series that we both enjoyed watching? And also, since Jen prefers binge-watching, uh, while Rado does not, do we watch TV separately rather than together? Mm, we certainly do, if you think of it as he watches a lot of TV that I don't watch. That is that is true, yes. Uh, <laughs> basically, every evening we'll watch some show or two uh, with, with my mom now. It used to be just us. And, you know, first we will watch something that Jen and Quincy and my mom enjoy that often is not. I just kind of tag along and I kind of give half my attention to. I think you're answering questions on Yahoo or something for that. Oh, time. yeah. I'm, 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 you know, I'm just doing Rado runs through stuff or whatever and just kind of being aware of the overall plot. And uh, then after mom and Jen go to bed, I stay up for another two or three hours and watch all the stuff I want to watch that neither of them do. So there's that. But I, that has nothing to do with binging versus not. Yeah. Certainly, what Jen prefers to do is wait until a season is practically over. I will not watch any episode until we have all 24 episodes. <laughs> and so that we can then watch them over three nights. It's like... Why? <laughs> Why? Because then it's all fresh in my mind. Uh, you gotta let it sit in your mind. You gotta let oh. it percolate. Do you remember? I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but there was something that happened on nine one one, and I couldn't even remember it from week to week because we got we watched several similar copy shows and cops mm -hmm. shows. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, what's going on? What what funeral are they talking about? And you're like, uh, honey, remember the uh, thing with hello? the stop? Oh, the like, thing, the big was, thing. It was huge. It was a huge thing. But and and it it had been off the air for four weeks while they were you know doing one of their little hiatusy oh, things. Yeah. And then when we came back, it was like, ah, the big aftermath of the thing. And just like, was there a thing? I can't remember the thing. So this is why I just I have limited brain space or something. It's a lot of it's full of glass. <laughs> so. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. That's why I like to watch, uh, you know, back-to-back, -back, basically. Mm -hmm. Let's see. All right, well, yeah, so, and I, I, I mean, I apparently have ample extra space in my brain <laughs> rattling out with nothing better to do than fill it full of useless TV trivia. 
Yeah. Or Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe trivia, or whatever it might be. Or good arguments about why this Star Wars was better than that Star Wars. Indeed. I got lots of uh, gray matter devoted to that. <laughs> and um, as opposed to managing our financial affairs, let's say. Yeah, or what... knowing how to take care of chickens. Or knowing how to take care of chickens, yes. Well, we all have our strengths. Yes. Uh, arguing the merits of Last Jedi, perhaps not as useful as how to give a chicken a tracheotomy. But, uh... Who am I to judge? So, oh uh, yeah, but, I don't know, I guess we do tend to let a show build up for, I don't know, usually like two or three weeks, but and then Jen will finally relent, and I say, can we please, it's been a month, can we please watch now? Well, but like on If it's Star a show Trek, I care about. On Star Trek, you just go ahead and watch it without me. Yes, that because... is something that I have recently started doing, because I have mm-hmm. simply refused to wait um, you know, if for no other reason, just because, you know, the internet is rife with spoilers that Jen would never see in a million years. So, uh, Jen still has five more episodes to go, maybe four now, on the new season of Star Trek Discovery, whereas I finished it a month ago. And I've just been waiting for Jen to decide that she would like to watch the rest of it, which is kind of a pain because of the ongoing. But uh, CBS All Access is only like, what, five or six bucks, so it's not that big a deal. And uh, yeah, so that's happening occasionally if I just simply refuse to wait any longer. And if it's a show, I don't mind watching a second time, and certainly that's true for Star Trek Discovery. Which I guess would maybe in part answer Melanie's other question, what are some recent streaming series that we both enjoyed watching? There would be Star Trek Discovery. Mm. Jen is certainly enjoying the second season much more than the first, now that there's less Klingon subtitles to read, apparently, was a real problem for her. (laughs) She did not care for such things. Uh, Is that fair? Yeah, is Lucifer? Because Lucifer's just come on, hasn't uh, it? The fourth season of Lucifer starts today, as a Woo, matter of fact. Lucifer Day! Whee! That'll be another one that I only kind of half pay attention to while Jen and Mom watch it predominantly. Because I can only handle so much of quirky, offbeat characters saving other people. <laughs> week after week after week. Uh, but, you know, it's, if you like that sort of thing, it's certainly a well-done one. Let's see here. What else can you think of, Honey Pie? Well, we're watching 911. Right, mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's a streaming thing. Uh yeah, nine one one. It's no, it's it's uh mm-hmm. it's on is it on Fox. I don't know. It's on some one of the network uh, stations. So yeah, nine one one and the rookie. Though that is one that both Jen and I can enjoy. Let's see if we were to only talk about ones Jen and I both enjoy, as opposed to I can't, I can barely just pay half attention, or Jen refuses and leaves the room. What have we got? We've got. Uh, see, I've actually just gone to one of the most useful websites ever, next-episode.net, because you can flag the ones you want, and it'll tell you only when new episodes come on. So every day I can see, oh, these are the new episodes. And I can see, okay, these are the ones that are streaming, these are the ones that are on live and all that, because it's so complicated these days. But anyway, uh, so we both watch 911. Um, Adam ruins everything. Oh, I love that. Uh, Afterlife. I was shocked that Jen enjoyed Afterlife. That was the the oh, yeah. sixth episode with Ricky yeah. Gervais. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know that's I I'm shocked. I didn't expect this, but it's getting a second season. Wow. Which it totally doesn't need because it told a completely yeah. beautiful, realized, self-contained story. But we're gonna have uh, more adventures of Tony as uh, and uh, and his dog. So Afterlife was amazing. Um, Jen used to be. We used to watch a lot of. Um, people surviving in the wilderness shows, you know, Bear Grylls and type stuff. But Jen, I mean, she was really... I, I could I could watch those. I didn't... They weren't my favorite thing, but Jen really loved them. But for some reason, you've just kind of tuned out. You, We've totally stopped watching Naked and Afraid. You just said, okay, I'm done with this. Yeah. Don't need to see enough naked 
fearful people. And yeah, I guess you don't, just, and you, you, I mean, you know, Bear Grylls is still doing stuff. You don't seem to care anymore. I don't know what's changed. Just, I've, I guess I've seen enough. Yeah. Except Alone. Yeah, Alone's really good. Yeah. Alrighty. Let's see here. What else that we both like? Oh, so many things that I like. Oh, so many things. I'm just having to skip page after page after page. So many things. So, so I can find something that Jen likes. Uh, oh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Okay, of course. we call that silly people. Jen calls it silly people. I call it Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Very funny stuff. Jen says she's going to watch the upcoming Catch-22 because she knows how important and influential it is in my life and worldview. So that's uh, coming soon. That's very exciting. We just watched a Twilight last night. Not a Twilight. Um, I was going to wait till I got to the tease. Oh, this is in alphabetical order. Well, I contributed something. I know, but yes. Uh, I was shocked that uh, Jen actually enjoyed the first episode of the new Twilight Zone. Yep. I did not expect her to like it at all. I only had it. I was going to watch it, but I know Mom has kind of like childhood memories of really being blown away as a little girl by Twilight Zone, and I thought, oh, she'd get a kick out of the new series, and I thought it'd maybe just be me and Mom when Jen is on vacation from us in, um, in <laughs> England, but we watched the first one, and Jen, uh, Jen, I think she herself was surprised. I was. Because it's a dark, grim show. But, yeah, she liked it. So, uh, put Twilight Zone. Um, let's see. Oh, Cosmos, which I was shocked, is apparently getting, uh, you know, with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Mm-hmm. It's getting another season that's coming. Oh, so, great. it's on the list of shows that aren't uh, over. Alrighty. Oh, d- uh, <sighs> Jen loves Designated Survivor. I do. I really do. I like it when he's dealing with president stuff and not when he's dealing with conspiracy stuff. The conspiracy stuff is just so hokey on that show. I can barely keep my attention. Uh, I mean, Jen used to be really hardcore into lots of veterinary shows, but now she's pretty much just limited to Dr. Jeff Rocky Mountain Vet. And she said, oh, none of the other vets I care about. Forget about the Bionic Vet or um, uh, Dr. D, Alaska Vet, or any of those vets. It's just now Dr. Jeff. Jeff. Dr. Jeff. That's the only one to watch. I totally love what he does. Right. He's awesome. Um, let's see. Elementary really is only for her and not for me. So I'm just trying to find ones that we both like. All right, I'm up to the F's now, and I'm now up to the G's, because Jen really filters out a lot of stuff here. Uh, grand Designs, mm, Jen likes it entirely. I mostly just like the first 10 minutes, up to the part where they do the the, the computer generation of, here's what's going to change. So I like to watch up to that, and then I totally zone out until the end. <laughs> because the mid part, it's the same it's every all time. Stressful graph. Yep, yep. Let's see, we're up to eyes now, and uh, I'm surprised Jen is tuned out of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but she's not, apparently she's not coming back. Um, uh, love it or list it, Kirsty and Phil, still watch that, and we're up to M's, or no, the Lucifer, we already mentioned that, and M's now. Oh, no, ah, okay, I'm just going to keep, I'm going to call out the ones that Jen likes that I don't. Because my list would be way too long. Uh, but uh, do you, you really do like Manifest, don't you? It's the I one with remember. the people on the plane that do the time jump. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, that one's not very good. But. Uh, hey, you've, you've missed God Friended Me. I did. Why is that not In here? Geez. Why is not God Friended Me? I totally skipped over that. That's um, kind of. But, oh, oh, because I, I know at that point I wasn't listening. Yeah, I, I was skipping over the ones. I was trying to find only ones that we both like, because that was the question. Ah. And God friended me. Oy. So saccharine. Ugh. Um, righty. And uh, the writing is so cliched. But anyway, 
All right. So back to all right. Manifest no. Ones we both like. I think we're almost done with Amazon. Oh, Minefield. Uh, making yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, fine, yeah. one of the few things that my YouTube premium uh, is worth. Let's see. Like I said, Naked and Afraid is no longer a thing in our household. Outlander. Yeah. Although we've got the whole third season, and I don't know why Jen has been sitting on it and not watching oh, it. Oh, because usually by the time your mom goes to bed, I'm like, oh, I'm tired too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the second season of Outlander was terrible. I mean, I but the third season has really turned it around and kind of gotten back to the the goods of the first season. But let's see here. Uh, oh, Shrill. Hmm. I did like that. Yes. I did like that. That was very very good. Yeah. The first season, we uh, we we uh, pretty much binged that really <coughs> quickly. That was very very good. And Star Trek Discovery, um, Survivor, of course. And oh, we're watching the Amazing Race. That didn't yeah. come up under yep, the news. Uh, this is uh, it's under T for the Amazing Race. I was just oh. about to say the Amazing Race, and which is which is off to a a good race. The Good Place. Oh yeah. Yep, yep. That is amazing. The Good Place is highly recommended. It just keeps reinventing itself. Uh, the Marvelous Miss Maisel. I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Orville. Yes. All I got to say, the Orville's kind of getting to the point where I only kind of have to pay attention. Uh, I already mentioned The Rookie. The Rookie. Yeah, probably the best new. Um, and what about The Tick? You really liked the first half of the first season of The Tick, but I don't even think you finished the second half. And I don't it, know. The second season is on Amazon now. And I haven't watched it yet. Am I just going to watch it without you? Oh, we could we could give it a try. All right, uh, the Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. the oh, all right, and Travel Man. Travel oh, yeah. Man is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, right, I, I highly recommended. Really good, fun stuff. We both enjoy it from start to finish. Richard Arwadi. Yeah, Richard Arwadi, and all right up to and I think that's it. That is a list of all the currently active shows that have not been finished or been canceled that Jen and I both enjoy. And there were plenty more I could talk that only she enjoys that I just kind of begrudgingly watch in the background and ones that I enjoy that she leaves the room for and I have to watch after hours. I don't know that there's a whole lot that I watch that you that, that would be on that list. Oh, I skipped a bunch. Well, like what? Well, I got to go through the whole list again. Well, well like Manifest. Or um, the other about. one about the asteroid that uh, is coming... And the the Elon Musk guy has to save everybody, and oh, right. yeah, yeah. you know, and all that. And I was like, Ugh. it's well. But to be fair, you select all my TV shows. Yes, so. well, I know I, I recommended it because I thought you would like it, and surprise, you did. And I just didn't realize how much I wouldn't like it. Um, well, we can stop watching it. We no, it's fine. So it's totally fine. Time. I don't mind. I mean, I I I I still enjoy uh, you know watching shows with you. It's it's fine. I'm just. Only kind of half paying attention instead of fully paying attention. There are shows that get a quarter of my attention, shows that get half my attention, and shows that get full attention. Um, Manifest is quarter attention. Um, Maybe eighth attention. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm aware. I'm, I'm I'm in the neighborhood of of consciousness of what's happening there. Let's see. We're both Care Bear gamers, so does this mean you apply your ethos? To TV and film consumption. Does this mean TV series with lots of violence, or any violence, are ones that you will not watch? Will you, ever, will you never watch Quentin Tarantino films, or Kill Bill, or Hateful Eight? Jen has no interest in gratuitous violence. Correct. And she has very little interest in whatever the opposite of gratuitous, uh, justified violence is. 
Uh, Jen has a very, very short... I mean, Jen thinks there's too much punchy punch in Marvel Cinematic Universe superhero movies. Yes. She, boy, I'd really wish if they could just maybe cut down three quarters of the fighting and just do more of the joking um, on the Guardians. If they, if they could just do more bickering amongst themselves and less intergalactic space battles, that would be great for Jen. She just kind of puts up with the uh, space battles. And... Uh, you know, but I'm, no, I have no problem. Uh, my predilection towards not uh, directly attacking other people does not in any way, shape, or form reflect in what I find entertaining. All righty. And this one's for me specifically because I said Glengarry Glen Ross was one of my favorite films of all time. Yes, it's certainly my top ten. This film, in my opinion, says Melanie, is one of her least favorite films she's ever watches and, or watched, and she watches a lot of movies. Sure, it's based on an award-winning play and fine acting, uh, but the entire dialogue of the film is all F-bombs and it's a descent into the most depressing depiction of business ever. Maybe that was Mamet's point in his pre-conservative worldview days. Did you know he's gone from being extremely progressive political views to 180 opposite conservatives? Yes, I did know that. And it's really interesting. Ever since he made that shift, whenever it was, back in, what, 2007, 2008, he has no longer been socially relevant. I, I, I know he's still writing, but none of his stuff seems to resonate. Um, as he has become, he's d pulled a Dennis Miller and just become a hardcore right-wing shill. And, um, you know, it's a real shame. But... Uh, let's see, what was the question? No, you're, there's actually no question in that entire paragraph. I'm sure your question is, how could I possibly like it? But you never actually answered that. You just said why you didn't like it. I like Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. That'd be someday maybe I should show it to Jen. It'd be really interesting. It's, uh, it's a film, Honey Pie, about a... Oh, and Jen's gone back to looking at pictures of beagles. Folks, in case you were curious what Jen was doing for the first half of this podcast, <laughs> she was on Pinterest looking at cute pictures of beagles. And yes, that is a very cute picture of a, a beagle pumpy sliding off of an office chair. It's adorable. It's asleep. And so pretty soon it's going to be on the floor. Yes. It is, yeah. It's, it's very adorable. Sorry, I can't share this with you folks. Um, it's a... It's a, it's a show about salespeople, uh, real estate salespeople, who have been given a deadline. They're going to get fired if they can't make sales. And uh, the, desperate move, the desperate ends they will go to, to um, achieve their materialistic desires. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's well, one, Mammoth's dialogue I love so much. It's, it's, it's lyrical in its delivery. It's very unrealistic. It's very, um, reminds me a lot of, oh, writer of West Wing. Um... Why am I thinking of the word Preston? That's not his... Oh, Aaron Sorkin. It's very Sorkin-esque in that it's not in any way, shape, or form realistic. People don't talk like that. But it's kind of what people would aspire to talk to. Uh, and and Mammoth's dialogue is the same. It's just very hard-hitting, very crisp, very to the point, and uh, interesting staccato beats to it. And I absolutely just love listening to it well-read. And nobody's ever done a better job. I mean, I actually saw Glengarry Glen Ross live in London, where Jonathan Price played the role of Ricky Roma instead of Ricky Roma's Mark, which was absolutely amazing, too. But yes, I, I have no problem with foul language. I am a purveyor of foul language in real life. You just never hear it on the show, because I try to keep my show clean. So that doesn't bother me at all. And, you know, it is. It's just a really affecting character study of these uh, people who, you know, in any other format you would find largely detestable because of what they do and, and what they're willing to do. But in this, it, it makes you care about them because, um, uh, because it just reveals their human flaws and drives. And, you know, it just... I, I just I, I'm just incredibly uh, empathetic and sympathetic towards their plight, and I mean, even though I know exactly what's going to happen, I, I'm just transfixed by it, mesmerized by it. It's just so amazing. Anyway, though, 
Was all that about Glengarry Glenn Ross? That was all about Glengarry Glenn Ross, which maybe you'd be interested in because Jen did Mary Kay for years. Yeah. And so maybe there would be uh, some underlying truths that she herself had to go through in her life. Although, heck, maybe that would make it too close for comfort for her. But anyway, so that was questions that we both enjoyed watching. Or shows we both enjoyed watching. And then, moving on to um, Melanie. Oh, <laughs> Melanie followed up. Sorry, my question was, why is Glenn Gray Glenn Ross one of your favorite films? I think I got to the root of your question there. Moving on, Josh says, he was very touched by my description of Stan Lee a few podcasts ago as a force of good he was from the world. I'd love to hear other people who bring such positivity and inclusivity to the spheres of influence. I was wondering if, if we have any other real-life superhero creators whose work we admire. Well, I'm sure that there must be some out there. Do you, is anything popping into your mind? No. What I was going to say is, I hate to say it. Oh, you know. Oh. Barack Obama. Okay. I um, I am on his Facebook whatever notification thingy. Okay, so yeah, you still get his. I get occasional email or like Facebook one a week posts. kind of little things. Yeah. Not even that. It's like it's once a month maybe. Okay. But he is still so actually so intelligent. He sends out. Articles that he's read that maybe he doesn't even agree with, but he thinks that they're good for us to read and just, you know, see the other point of view. Um, and also what he's doing this whole, it's not an entrepreneur thing. It's, it's basically building the leaders of tomorrow mm-hmm. um, program with the Obama Foundation. And I'm just so impressed with all the good he's still doing in the world. So I'm going to say Obama. Okay. And I, I wish I had more time. I would go and see what Michelle's up to because I don't think we've probably heard the last of what... You know, she's going to be offering the world, but mm-hmm. I'm just super impressed with Barack Obama. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, then, I mean, if you're going to mention him, of course, you got to mention Bill Gates as well um, for everything he's doing in the world also. Yep. Yeah. What I was going to say is I couldn't think of anybody off the top of my head. And if you had asked me this question a year ago, I wouldn't have even thought of Stan Lee. Because the reality is I really didn't think about Stan Lee in that way until after he died. And, you know, people were eulogizing him and, and look, saying, look at all, all that he has done in his creative works. And, um, yeah, I just, I don't think I necessarily appreciate public figures or celebrities or think about them that much, really, uh, until they die. Um, so you might as well add Robin Williams and Steve Irwin on the list as well while you're at it. Um, but anyway, so that was a good answer, anybody. Yes, unless Jen has something more to say on this topic. Um, I kind of do, and oh maybe you only think about them when they're dead, mm-hmm. because sort of the story. <laughs> the possibility for revisions has ended mm. um, at that point because I mean, like the Me Too thing right now with Kevin Spacey and everybody else, you don't really know until stuff comes out. But when somebody dies, I mean, that's that is a time of reflection on their lives, mm-hmm. and you can kind of take the sum total of everything and you know say yes or no, mm. yay or nay on that. So maybe that's why. Could be. Yeah. That makes sense. Dave says <clears throat> it will be. Mm. Those are his game-related ones. My wife and I have fallen in love with Italy. We go as often as we can, and we've hoped to find you when we were visiting Malta in a year or so. Um, But when we do visit Malta, without the best game reviewer on the planet, where should we visit, (laughs) Would that be me? Uh, Yes, exactly. Where should we uh, visit, eat, and stay? I had so hoped to meet you even for a few moments, but we understand your decision. But when you do visit Malta... Uh, but when we do visit Malta, please tell us where to eat, where to visit, and where we should stay. Gosh. Well, of course, if you go to Emdina, you got to go to Fontanella's. That's the place. Um, they've got red and white striped awnings. You can't miss it. It's right right in the middle of... Uh, well, not. It's along the edge of 
Amdina, but you can't miss it. They have amazing cakes and pies there. I would go for the banana. It, 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 yes, it, they are, they have, I would say they have very good cakes and pies. I've never understood quite why Jen was so absolutely over the over the moon in love with them. But they're good. They're good. They're good. And they've got an amazing view. Yep. Uh, the best crepes in the world is at Checkers Creperia in Slima. Yep. And the best ice cream in the world is at Busy Bee Ice Cream, also in Slima. I'm not going to say the world, but... In I, the world! No, the best well, on okay. Malta. The best vanilla ice cream in the world. Because vanilla has no right to be as good as their vanilla ice cream is. Okay, I'm going to say the cinnamon ice cream is also Busy Bee is to really, die for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have a serious, like, darker chocolate than you've ever seen before ice yeah. cream that's really good, too. Yep, almost too dark. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you need like a half a thing of that and a half a thing of the cinnamon. Yeah, of course, we lived on Gozo, but whenever, once every couple of months, we had to go to the the Big Island for any particular the reason. The Big Island! We would always uh, ensure that every time we visit, we would swing by and get a crepe from Checkers, and then, since it's so close by, get some ice cream afterwards Yep. Uh, from Busy Bee. That was our lovely, lovely outing. Yep, but I don't know, beyond that... You know, just get some pastizis from any place, really. Yeah, pastizis are wonderful. But honestly, you know, people have been asking me this for years. You are not the first to ask, Dave. And I always just say, you know, we can't really tell you much of anything that any top 10 list on TripAdvisor or any place else would tell you. I mean, all the places, yes, of course you should see MDA, because that's what everybody says. Yeah. Yes, of course you should see the Dome and Mosta, because that's what everybody says, you know, with the, with the big... Yeah. Um, you know, and of course you should see, well, not the Azure window anymore, but... Um, yeah, I mean, all, all the places they recommend, I, I would second those recommendations. Yeah. Um, and I would also add, um, if you're not into geocaching yet, you can go to geocaching.com, G-E-O-C-A-C-H-I-N-G.com, and sign up for a free membership. And then you can access what locals um, know about their areas, because people will hide caches in really cool places. And that's often when we're traveling, we will do that so that we can see kind of the insider's view. And we found some some very cool caches on Malta. Remember that one that was uh, along the wall, the fortifications wall. Um, over yeah, I, I, I um, if you want some more Malta suggestions, go look up my old advent calendar. Oh yeah, starting at about number day nine or ten or eleven, we started just driving around Malta and <laughs> opening up the advent calendar in various places. And one of the places we stopped was that geocache spot that Jen is talking about. Wasn't it Golden Bay? Oh, that was there was a geocache there, but no, I'm thinking about that one that's on the fortification line, the wall, that was a bit north of Emdina. I don't remember that one. Oh, yeah, yes, 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 I do remember that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was good. So, yep. I mean, things like I that. Totally you forgot about you that. wouldn't. That's not going to be in a guidebook. But yeah. The locals know. Yep, geocaching.com. That's a really good suggestion, not just for Malta, but for any place. For anywhere you go, uh, we always you, look up. Yeah, because geocacheers often come up with, well, look, I live here, and this is the place I think everybody should go, so I will do that by putting a little treasure hunt yep. that will lead you there. So that's a good idea. All righty. Um, moving on to Chris. He asks, or she, I suppose, uh, in a previous podcast, we discussed our 20th wedding anniversary. He thought this, or uh, Chris thought this was a perfect month to ask this question. We mentioned um, being on a catamaran boat and oh, sailing yeah. around Greece for a week or two. Could we elaborate? I assume there's a crew that sailed the boat? Or did you (laughs) sail the boat? Uh, You know, Chris knows that I grew up on a boat, and therefore I'm probably a proficient sailor. (laughs) Proficient, I think, is maybe a bit stronger word. Actually, maybe I would have been proficient when I was 12. 
But um, all those long lessons learned are, are long, long gone, I'm afraid. Although it was, it was interesting to be on that catamaran, and a lot of it did kind of come back to me. Hmm. Um, I wouldn't go so So if the skipper had gone, gone, uh, gone. I, I would have stepped up. But no, <laughs> it was a, it's, what was it? It, it? it was a big catamaran, or no, it was a trimaran, wasn't it? No, it was a catamaran. It was a catamaran. It was a catamaran, yeah. I think there were eight of us on board. Yeah, eight, eight guests. And then the captain had the captain and his first mate. I think there were two. There were three crew in total, right? No, the there captain was two. and oh, it was just the captain and one mate. Yeah. Well, okay. His wife. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and then eight guests. Yeah. All of us couples. Yep. So we each had um, one of the what do you call those things? The catamaran things that are in the water. The pontoons. I guess the pontoons. Yeah. So there was in the front and back, in the front and the back on either side. That's where the cabins were, mm-hmm. and we were in the back left cabin. Um, which it was surprisingly roomy, uh, for being in a pontoon, basically. Um, the main thing is it was hot in, in <laughs> Greece in, I think we went in August, didn't we? I, I don't know. It was July or August. It was, it was really hot. And so, um, there was no air conditioning on board because of course you'd normally be up on deck enjoying the sea breezes or whatever. So it was a little bit warm, but, um, it was really nice. We had actually gotten, my parents had this thing with, um, Oh, what, what's that company called? Oh, oh, timeshare. Basically a timeshare. A timeshare that your folks had gotten yeah. but even before you were born, I think. Well, the, anyway, like that, they've right? had it a long time. Anyway, so we were able to use the week, um, one of those weeks, to, to get this cruise. Right. And so... At a discount. Because well, yeah. it was kind of mostly covered by... Because they, they just subscribed to this yeah. timeshare thing. And every year, they got to come up with something to do with the thing. Yeah. And that year, we got it. And we I found, was, look at this. Yeah, every other year. But anyway, yeah. basically, it doesn't matter. So this is what we did with it that time. And it was amazing. And I think there was, I don't know, it was $1,000 each or something just for food and petrol or something that we had to pay in addition. But it was fine. It was for our 25th anniversary or 20th anniversary. Mm. God. That's what Chris says. Yeah, 20th. I'm going to go with 20th. Anyway, it was amazing. It was just absolutely fantastic. It was in this um, little... Uh, we started on this little island that you kind of had to work to get to. But then they just motored us around all of these amazing Greek islands. We'd stop. We'd be in port. We could have a meal if we wanted to. In, in, on these islands, that, you know, you would just never get to otherwise. And, of course, the weather was fantastic and the water was beautiful. And they'd let you snorkel anytime you wanted Ah, oh, it was amazing. No scuba diving, unfortunately, which we kind of wanted to do, but say la vie. We could have stayed after or come earlier mm-hmm. if we'd wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I suppose so. But, um, yeah, it was just really so relaxing. And, I mean, I love I love the whole idea of um, RVing anyway because you've kind of got your home. And your home travels with you as you are going along. So you don't have to pack and unpack and repack and unpack and repack and all that. Same thing with a catamaran or a boat, I suppose. It was really nice and yeah. so relaxing. Did yeah. I say relaxing yet? Uh, I think you you were a bit relaxed. And this was this was back when we were still living in England. I was still working full time. So we were pl- we were board gamers, but I hadn't switched over to doing this Rado craziness. And so that was back when when we go on vacation, we would take games with us. Yeah. Now we go on vacation, we don't because we're <laughs> taking vacation away from the games. <laughs> back then, what did we take? We took. Oh, uh, Saint Petersburg, Aaliyah E Octa S, Makarinos, and one other. I cannot think of the fourth one. And uh, you know, so we were we were probably playing a game a day, or maybe a couple of games a day. And there were uh, not all the couples, but a couple of the couples were definitely interested. And so we ended up playing games with them and whatnot as well. Yeah. So maybe turned a few, uh, create a few new geeks along the way. But yeah, it was good. I mean, it was like a full week, right? Yeah. Um, maybe six days or something like that. Yeah. A couple half days with the getting on and the getting off. It was amazing. Yeah. Totally would do that again. 
although not in the heat of summer. Yeah, I guess we'll have to wait for our 50th. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be a good one. That's a ways off, though. Yeah. All righty. Colin says he believes... But our 30th isn't. Yeah. 30th? 30th, smartieth. I know, but we're at 28. We're not doing anything really fabulous for 28. Mm-hmm. But we could maybe do something fabulous for 30. I mean, I believe you mean to say we didn't do anything for our 28. And I believe I got up that morning and said, Happy anniversary! And you said, <gasps> And that was about all we did that day. I think that's pretty much it, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I think you get a month's grace on either side of an anniversary, so we, we still have a little bit of time. Fair enough. Pull something out of the hat. Alrighty, uh, Colin asks, or says, he believes that I am a Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul fan and wonders, have I watched Black Sails? The show is nowhere near related. Uh, Black Sails is a pirate show about taking place 300 years in the past. Precursor to the novel Treasure Island, Captain Flint and young John Silver are the main characters. I highly recommend it because like Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, it's extremely well written with a story that starts very slowly and builds and builds and builds. An incredibly satisfying tale. I am aware of Black Sails. It has been on my list of things to watch for quite a while. In fact, I think at one point, Jen, I even started watching the first episode, but I don't remember what came up. Alrighty. And um, let's see. I apologize for my obsession with your music selection from segment breaks. TV shows and themes are especially interesting to me for some reason. Have you ever used any of these? The Munsters, Knight Riders, Police Squad, or Magnum P.I.? I know I've done Magnum P.I. and Knight Rider, and I'm... Oh, I never even thought about Police Squad. I might do Police Squad on this very episode. That's a really good one. Oh. Anyway, uh, and the Munsters, I don't even remember. All I can think of is the Adams Family. But good suggestions, Colin. Okay, Dave says... Oh, this is... Uh, David asked the uh, Glass Murano question. So, uh. he said, We spent the wrong day in Murano, and all the glassmaking tours were closed. We're going back next year and hope you can tell us what to see. Well, Jen would say, "Don't go." No, no. Apparently, actually, so on Facebook, I am, I am, I friended the Murano Glass Week. I think is called. I'll tell you, and you can put it in the show notes. But basically, they're trying to rejuvenate the small makers, individual crafters, that sort of stuff. I mean, getting back into actual craft rather than the commercialized, um, massive inventory stuff mm-hmm. so i know that they do a huge thing around that and that might that i mean that would be my recommendation is try to go and schedule it like with that. that yeah it's going on right. and i would like to go as well all right maybe we'll um, do that for our 30th hey all right you did like venice oh i loved venice i mean i would but like by your own admission one should not stay for a week in venice or one should live for six months in venice <laughs> so it's either four days or six months yep. nothing in between all right. Seems good to me. Jen, you say you like lemon drops. I do. What about limoncello? I've had limoncello. Limoncello. Well, I don't know. While they know. were in Sorrento, his wife fell in love with it. Oh, I, I assume it must be fantastic. Put that on the list then. And apparently she likes limoncello, so that's not too far off. Uh, let's see. Uh, Dave has seriously been thinking about retiring in Italy. Given wow. our thrifty nature, would we recommend Malta? I assume we can get cheap transportation to Italy to wander about. What advice would you give us for retiring in Malta? Okay, well, well the first question is, are you American? I'm, I'm assuming you are, but anyway, I'm sorry. Go on, hit him back. 
Oh, well, I just want to address the transportation. There's a um, thing called Virtue Ferries that goes from Malta to Sicily. And they're actually pretty expensive, especially if you're going to take a car over, which, of course, you probably need to because it's not like there's anything at all in the port once you get into Sicily. So um, it was like a couple hundred euros, 250, something like that, return with a car and two people. And that is pretty expensive. But if you... Yeah, I, I would say living in Malta. I mean, we thought living in Malta meant... We'd be doing a lot, but I mean, yeah, yeah the, the ferry is, is is pretty much a non-go. Plus, you get off the ferry, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. You are in nowhere land. Yeah, and then sp- expect to drive another couple of hours before you get to the good stuff. Yep. but um, So it's all about flights. Yeah, but flights. There are two airports um, in the northern part of Sicily that you can fly to very easily and very cheaply on, you know, Euro flights. Well, it's not just... even Sicily, but Italy in general. I mean, there are cheap flights to Rome and Milan and everything. Yeah. 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 I mean, basically, you have to fly out of Malta to get anywhere Anyway, I mean, to usually one of the hub cities like Paris or Rome. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's fairly cheap. So that was awesome. That was definitely awesome. Um, that was just the transportation. Right. Yeah. I mean, oh, but, you, oh, know, also, you know, um, Dave was supposing that if they were to retire in Malta, would they have access, or, you know, reasonably priced, thrifty access to Italy? And the yeah. answer to that question is flights, yes. yes. Cheap flights. Uh, and Spain as well. I mean, uh, there's like... Uh, um, can't think of the Ryanair, name. yeah, Ryanair. But I was trying to think of Seville and um, oh, you mean Madrid? Oh, yeah, are the two hub cities in in Spain that uh, all the the flights from Malta go to? Yeah, I mean to this day, I still get emails. It seems like almost every week from Ryanair saying, <laughs> "Fly to Rome next week for forty euros." Yeah. Ah, okay. I oh right from Malta. I really got to get off this mailing list. <laughs> this is very cruel. Yeah. I mean, basically, we we didn't quite live as freedom a lifestyle as we could have with the chickens and the dogs and stuff. I think um, when we move back to Europe, we will get little dogs that can fly with us. And then we will be doing that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. All of it. All of the time. All righty. Um, any other thoughts about thrifty retirement in Malta? Yeah. Um, yes. I think Malta is a great place for that. Our cost of living was extremely inexpensive. Well, but when we were able, I mean, we are EU citizens. We have British passports. We're not EU citizens if Brexit happens. Well, yeah, but I mean, when we were there, we were EU citizens. So it was no big deal. Of course, we could just go down there and live there. It was no big problem. And I forget what our, I mean, the tax situation was very complex, right? But I mean, complex in a good way because Malta is effectively a tax haven. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could, I think you could buy a Maltese passport for something like a hundred thousand dollar contribution to Malta, something like that. So Only a hundred K? Well, I would have to look it back up. But I thought it was like a million. No, I think it was okay. substantially less than that. Yeah. I, I just know, I mean, th- th- there's a real hue and cry from all the locals. How dare we sell our Maltese soul to these Russian oligarchs? What are we getting for it? Um, et cetera, et cetera. hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Euros. But anyway, so, I mean, it seemed like it was fairly reasonable, actually, if you wanted to buy multi-citizenship. I mean, that's a lot of money. But you could spend that on a, you know, a, a trailer or an RV or something if you wanted a big fancy RV. So you sell your house, you buy some citizenship, you live somewhere cheap for the rest of your life, and hey, Bob's your uncle. Yeah, because it's certainly very cheap to live there. About the only thing that was of, of any great expense, like, like getting electronic equipment or mm. cars... Yeah, don't do not try and take a car into that country. Buy a car once you're there. Yeah, but cars if are you have to. But cars are expensive there. I mean, 
goods that had to be shipped to Malta are implicitly more expensive. Yeah. Because uh, there's significant import taxes on everything, and that just gets passed along to customers. Another relatively expensive thing was electricity. Wasn't electricity a bit high, more expensive than, yeah. than normal? I mean, food is cheaper. Eating out is cheaper. Almost everything is crazy, crazy cheap. There were just a few things that were expensive, and yeah. I think electricity was one of them. Yeah. Um, and you know, cars and electronics. I know when I bought a speaker bar, I was sh- a Sony speaker bar. I was shocked how much it cost, and I was like, "Why can't I just order this on Amazon? It would be half the price and free shipping." Instead, I got to go find it in a mall and pay pretty much MSRP, ah, or even higher than MSRP. Mm. Well, and having glass shipped to Malta. Or anything else. Basically, you could have it shipped anywhere in the EU for, say, 10 euros. Mm-hmm. But Malta, it was $30 or yeah. $40. Yeah. Because it's an island. Yep. So, uh, just uh, you know, plan on taking your stuff there. Because <laughs> you're probably going to want to buy a lot of stuff when you get there. And um, yep. And when you do your little trips to Rome or whatever, buy some stuff in Rome and bring it back in your suitcase. Well, the fact that there was a cottage industry oh, where, yeah. where people could... I mean, Sicily has an Ikea. And we use this several times. Uh, you you contract them to literally go all the way to Ikea on those incredibly expensive ferries, pick up the stuff and bring it back to you. You would do that because with all of that, it was cheaper than buying local furniture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's just because everything's got to get uh, shipped in and there's just big import duties on everything. So that's an issue. But otherwise, it's a very cheap place to live. Rent, if you don't live in, like, the major tourist traps. Right. If, you just, if you're willing to go... You know, five blocks away from any major tourist trap, so, you know, prices just plummet. And I don't know, five it, it, blocks, ten blocks maybe. Yeah, yeah. Or not just be in the metropolitan areas. Yeah, just in one of those small little country towns. Uh, any other envir- uh, retire- retirement advice for Malta? I can tell you one thing. Just do a Google search for Retire Malta. There are a lot of websites devoted to it. Mm-hmm. There's lots of expat or expat in Malta. Because, uh, you know, Malta... Uh, British citizens flock oh, there like crazy. Yeah. Malta... To British senior citizens is like Florida to American senior citizens. <laughs> it's where half of them all eventually go Don't to retire. Senior citizens say retirees. Retirees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yes. All righty. Okie doke. Both of you. What is your favorite mainland Italy spot? Mainland Italy. So... He, he, he said two different words. Mainland Italy spot. I'm sure you meant mainland yeah. Italy. And it's, so not it's... Venice then, because that would be in the lagoon. Okay, all right. Maybe that's why he called it out. Okay, Rome. Yeah. I mean, well, we haven't done that much in Italy. No. What have we done? We did Milan. Uh-huh. Um, we did Venice. We did Rome. We did we, Lake Como. We did what? Lake Como. Lake Como? What was that? Lake, the lake we did after, uh, we drove around that lake. Yeah. After Venice. Was that in Sicily? No, that was... Oh, that's right. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, right, 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 yes. I, I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did Lake Como. In the mafia car. And we did, um, what did we do in Sicily? We did something oh. on the east. Okay, so we flew in on the east. I think that's not Catania. It's the other one. Uh-huh. We rented a car over there. In fact, we stayed up in the Mile High City or whatever that was. Oh, God, I'd have to look it up. Anyway, there's a place that's above the clouds mm-hmm. that you can stay. And that was really cool. And then we, we drove a car basically along the north coast and the east coast of Sicily down to basically Catania. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was really, really nice. When we did our move down trip, we actually did drive our car down from England, and we did take the ferry to Sicily, and then we took um, another ferry from Sicily right. to. We Malta. did not drive through Italy. We 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 basically got on the ferry. We we basically crossed over into Italy briefly out of Switzerland, drove yeah. for the tiniest little bit, of, and then got on a ferry and rode the ferry all the way down to Sicily. Yeah, mainly because I was exhausted. Well, also at the time, 
Yeah. There was a time in Jen's life when she was terrified of the idea of driving in Italy. Just because of, of all oh. the stereotypical stories you heard of how terrible Italian drivers are. Living in Malta for six years <laughs> has completely disabused Jen of any notion that she couldn't handle Italian drivers. Because that whatever they do, it's nothing compared to the insanity of Maltese drivers. Yeah. They are crazy people behind the wheel. Yeah. Uh, but so when we it's, did... It's, it's Mad Max Road Warrior. Every day <laughs> yeah. on the roads of Sicily, or Malta. Yeah. Anyway, so when we had driven down before to move to Malta, we actually drove through sort of the center of Sicily and then over to... Um, Yes. What's the place I'm thinking of? Um, starts with an S. You're better at this than me. Oh, I can't think of it. Syracusa. Syracusa. Yeah. All right. Um, because I had seen uh, Syracusa on The Amazing Race. Oh. And for some reason, it had, it had fixed itself in my mind for 10 years. that If ever I get to Sicily, that's where I want to go. And we went. And, and it was no big deal. It was no big deal. It was like nothing. I'm like, what? So we did find a, a lovely little town nearby, though, as we were driving towards the ferry. Um, that was amazing, and I would have to. Look yes, at, I was just going to mention what's that. that. T. It started with a T. It's just we 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 got off the road because I think we were hungry or we had to go to the bathroom or something like that. We got off the freeway, heading south towards the ferry, and it was this little. Um, and I think they were right in the middle of some festival or other. And we sat down in a corner cafe and just hung out there for a couple of hours. Yeah. And that that was maybe maybe my favorite time ever in Italy. And we don't remember the name of the town. Although Jen is checking it out on Google Maps. Yep, I'm going to look it up. On her phone. And while you're looking for that, you can also ask Dave's last question. Are there any must-visit fish markets in Malta? They love the Rialto fish market and hope there will be something similar in Malta. Oh, Valletta! We've been to Valletta, which is another board game. There you go. <laughs> um, um, Noto. N-O-T-O. N-O-T-O. Yep. Just, a, just a charming, quaint little village in the middle of nowhere, basically. Well, on the way down to the, the yeah. ferry at Pozzolo. Yeah. Um, so anyway, any must-visit fish markets, because there's nothing like fresh clam linguine with some Casa Rosa. Well, there are, you can get fish at everywhere, all over the place in Malta. And they even drive it around and yell out their windows at you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Fresh fish trucks driving up and down the street every day. Yep. So uh, you will not, you will, well, I can say that, I mean, I don't like fish at all. And so therefore, unfortunately, we don't have that much fish because Jen loves it. But Jen does not like cooking fish because she doesn't like the smell of it stinking up the house for days afterwards. And I just don't like it to begin with. And so since we rarely eat out, we rarely have fish. Ah, the other place that is Trapani. Trapani. Is the other. So Trapani was the little village or was Noto the little village? Noto, but Trapani is the other air, airplane. Oh. Port that we flew into, and then we drove along the north coast. Oh, okay. And Arisi is the place I was talking about in the clouds. E R I C E, ancient um, top of the um, mountain, walled city kind of a thing. E R I C E. Oh yes, yes, yes. That was really cool too. Yeah. Okay, doke. Uh, Mario. Mario says, not sure if board game question. And because of the way he formatted it, I didn't even see this. So this is really a board game question. We should have asked it back then. So sorry, folks who uh, want to hear about board game Q's and A's and check out on the personal. You're missing this one. Honey <laughs> pie. Uh, recently, there's a thread on my guild about sustainability and the impact of the board game hobby on climate. I'd already given my answer on BGG, but, um, but Mario would like the two of us to give a bit of our opinion on the matter for folks who listen to the podcast, but don't go on Board Game Geek. Feel free to ignore this one if you think it's not an interesting subject. Anyway, do you have anything to say about the sustainability of the board game industry? Uh, because, hey, we've got a whole bunch of dead trees surrounding us here. 
Yeah, and a lot of plastic as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of little plastic baggies. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that for the amount of stuff that goes into making the games versus the amount of playability and replayability and enjoyability, that this is probably fairly good value for Mm -hmm. the investment in the environmental stuff. Yep. That would be my, my general feeling. Um... As far as sustainability. Well, that's just a general buzzword for, you know, or catchphrase for the notion of, is this a, not not that, I mean, can the board game industry be sustained, but rather, wh- what, how, how does it have impact on climate? I mean, oh, sustainability, the sustainability rating of something is, how much does it hurt the planet, basically? Okay. Actually, I, I hadn't given it much thought, but what is a sustainability rating? I don't know. I, um, and, but the reality is, I think you're right. I mean, uh. <laughs> board games are such a tiny, tiny, tiny little blip compared to just the paper industry. Well, um, think you about know, cigarettes. Or, 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 yeah, or, yeah, compared to anything. And like you said, uh, while I'm sure they could do better, you know, probably uh, the bigger issue with board games than... And I, I have to admit, uh, uh, Mario, I have not actually read that thread because it seemed like it was getting kind of a little flamey. And Is I just it on kind your of jumped board? In. Yeah, it was on... on and I, I kind of skimmed it, okay. but people, but it was mostly people arguing about whether you should take cruises because cruises are evil, oh. um, relatively speaking, in terms of, you know, their overall impact. But no, they're not because of this and that and the other and lots of back and forth. And I'm like, okay, I don't really have a dog in this. Um, but, uh, shoot, what was I going to say? The bigger issue, if anything, about board games is not the fact that there's a lot of pulp that gets crunched and inked and whatnot into our components, but rather that the vast majority of it is made in China and then shipped all around the world and is contributing to, um, you know, climate change via just, you know, the international shipping and things would be a lot better if board games were just produced down the road. Or um, you could just have it printed out yeah. at your local 3D printer. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people point out that, well, you know what? A lot of European publishers do actually print in Europe, and it's really mostly an issue in America, And but, you know, people could. And then, like I said, it just kind of devolved into a lot of arguments about the cost of printing presses and stuff like that. I'm like, I, again, don't have much to say about this thread. It was a very interesting thread. Um, it only got flamey a little tiny bit. But uh, So maybe in 10 years, everybody will be getting their games printed out at the local 3D printer. Yeah, or their own. That they have in their house. I mean, that is that is the future. There's no choice about that, which we talked about in the past. Yeah. I mean, if they can synthesize food, then mm-hmm. why not synthesize all the game pieces? Yep. No, that'll totally happen. Totally. That'll be nice. Yep. Uh, see, Michael says, with so much media to consume these days, how do we prioritize it all? I'm in a constant state of having multiple movies to watch, shows to watch, podcasts to listen to, books to read, board games to play, etc. It's a great problem to have, but sometimes it makes me sad that I can't fit it all in. Thoughts. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one reason I go to bed after a couple of shows. I actually like to read, and so if I don't make time in the evenings to read, I don't, I don't get a chance to read. Mm-hmm. So, and that gives him his time to watch TV too. So, I mean, it's kind of a win-win that way. Um, yeah, I remember reading. Uh, I think it's about twenty years ago now that the state of the publishing industry had en- had become such that even if you read a page a second, you would not be able to read every book and every magazine, you know, that was published that year. It's just physically impossible, Mm -hmm. even if you could read a page a second. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I went, oh, 
oh, what a relief. I, I don't have to keep up with everything <laughs> I've been trying to keep up with because it's, it's a physical impossibility. So I, now I really pick and choose what to give my attention to. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes me a calmer, happier person. All right. And one of the things I do not give my attention to is the news cycle. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. Every once in a while, Jen asks me, is there anything I need to know? And I have to honestly sell her. No, not really. Not really. Nope. Okay. Alrighty. Well, while I'm answering this same question, because this is the next to last question, the final question, of course, is from Henrik. What is your wisdom of the month? Oh, I did. I did find something. Oh, you are prepared. Well, well, we're not there yet, because I, I don't read uh, much to my chagrin. I really should, but I read too many. I mean, I just read three uh, manuals this morning, so um, I don't have time to read nothing else but board game booklets. So that's a shame, but. Uh, the way I prioritize, um, well, it's just a matter of, of just being really cutthroat. Oh, yeah, that was a nice show. Don't need to watch it again. I, I enjoyed it. Sure. It was good. I'd, I'd have to watch another, but did I love it? No. I've got too many shows I'm not watching that I already love. So no time for shows that are like, eh, yeah, I like it. So, uh, you know, that's it's, it's as simple as that. It's uh, no different than when you're out of shelf space for your games. And, oh, I want to get this new game, and I know I want it. Well, what do I get rid of? Because I love every one of these. Well, but you love some more than others, so just say goodbye to the one that you love the least. It's as simple as that, really. I can say, for my TV consumption, I just mentioned earlier one of the two absolutely essential websites I use, uh, next-episode.net. I use it so much that I actually donated to the developer uh, because it's such a it's such a really great... It does a lot of smart stuff that I haven't seen any other site do to let you know, right, of all the stuff you like, here's what's on today and um, what's on next week and what you just missed from the last few days and stuff like that. So it's really an excellent, um, uh, really the, the best TV amalgamation site there is. And then the other one I use is, what is it, justwatch.com. And that one's mostly because nowadays so many shows are not on network TV anymore, but are, was it, is this on Hulu? Is this on Amazon? Is this on Netflix? Is this on CBS Go? I don't know. Um, justwatch.com is uh, how I can look up you know, if, if I see something on Next Dash episode, then I come over to Just Watch and fi- find it. It'd be really great if these two things could be combined into one. That would be awesome. But uh, that is not a goer right now. But Just Watch is absolutely fantastic. Oh, um, is this movie available to stream yet? What platform is it on? Just type in the name of the movie and it'll tell you where you can stream it, which ones uh, are part of the subscription service, which ones you have to pay three bucks for, which ones you have to pay ten bucks for. Absolutely phenomenal. So those are two very good websites that help out quite a bit, at least for a TV junkie like me. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, at least the moment that Henrik has been waiting for, <laughs> could Jen please share her wisdom of the month? Ah, okay. So this is a quote by Jane... Ooh, she this. she got to get up close to the mic for this one. Oh, Jane Goodall all right. said this. And she said, You cannot get through a single day without having an impact on the world around you. What you do makes a difference. And you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. All right. That's a good one. Yeah. That has nothing to do with gorillas. No, but she chose what kind of difference she wanted to make. Yes, there you go. Yep, yep. Good. Excellent. Okay. Thank you again, Henrik. We'll hear from you again shortly, I'm sure. And that is another one in the... Box? Can. I was thinking in the box. On the bites. In the tank. But no, you're right. It's in the can. Another one in the can. (laughs) All right. Uh, Thanks for listening, as always, everybody. And And the chips, because aren't we writing things on memory chips these days? 
I perhaps I'll stick with a can though. Okay. Sometimes the old ways are the best. And uh, please send in more questions to questions at rado.com and we'll answer them again in roughly 30 days time. But otherwise, hope you have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye. Bye. Just not saying bye-bye. Oh.